I talk to the people that lie beneath these stones. Imagining they listen makes me feel less alone. I pick up the broken flowers, sometimes I dig a hole. To welcome in the new ones, introduce them to the old. Well, I can use a chisel and a polisher the same. I'll put anything you'd like to say under a name. I'll put on my suit, make sure my tie is straight, lend a hand to the morning, sending loved ones on their way. Well, I ain't afraid of dying, cause I know. Says my name. 
the same Stop by sometime Tip your head to the rock that says my name Jason Johannes. Welcome back to episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Thank you, everybody, for uh, the downloads, participating on the Facebook page. Uh, last time I checked, we are at 995 members. Five, five more. We need five, five more. Five more. Everybody invite a friend. That's so right. if enough people invite one friend, hopefully we can get five or maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> it'll trickle on like like in a week and a half it'll be like 996 two weeks later 998 <laughs> you know what you need to do post it on the facebook page and like hey we need five more people to and like just we'll get it we'll see who does it yeah for sure oh so and uh today uh and going forward uh mark ford was on the state of america our buddies Ian and David and the Black Crow State of America podcast had Mark Ford as a guest. And, uh, you know, by the time you hear this, will be Monday. But uh, if you don't haven't heard it already, um, check it out. And you want to talk about his live stream, Jason? Yeah, I do. So um, we're actually recording this intro on January 14th on Thursday. And tonight, Mark Ford is doing a live stream of his Live in Germany concert from May 16, 2017. So he did a uh, video recording and an audio recording of it. Tonight, there is a live stream. Um, you can go to Mark Ford's page and check it out. If you buy the live stream, I think you have it for um, extended period of time, like up to 30 days or something like that. So if you're, you didn't catch it because you're hearing it now on our podcast, you can go ahead and, and buy it. Uh, this live stream. Also, you can just buy the digital copy of that uh, through Bandcamp or again, go through Mark Ford's website. Uh, there's no physical media for it yet. It's just strictly uh, digital on the um, on the on the album. So I heard some bits and pieces of it today. Actually, uh, the tail end, if you listen to the State of America podcast, they played two songs at the end of it. Sounded great. So I'm extremely excited to listen to the live stream tonight and uh, 
check out the album afterwards. I have yet to listen to that episode of State of America, but I'll definitely, before the night is out, I'll be listening to that. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, I snuck it in while I was doing some work on the computer where I, you know, I could just t- do mindless stuff and listen. So it helped, but it, it took right. me a couple hours because I quit, keep stopping. But it was great, great pod, great podcast. Even Ian did a good job. Mark was very relaxed, answered a lot of questions, seemed to have a lot of fun. He gave him an hour, which was awesome. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, music fans, Southern rock fans, obviously you're probably Black Crows fans. Check it out. It's, it's really good. So we're going to talk about, uh, there's an anniversary one of the Black Rose records. That's right. So it's a Black Rose-centric podcast. So the 14th of January is this Mark Ford release. The 12th of January on Tuesday, two days ago, was the anniversary of the fifth studio album, The Black Rose, By Your Side. It came out uh, January 12th, 1999. And Brian, where did you first hear that album or when did you first get that album you know i at the time uh there was uh uh, i was in grand forks north dakota at that time which is about 80 miles north of here fargo and uh there was a there was a a a disc and disc cd store and clothing and all that and it's called discontent discontent Um, nice discontent well it's disc and tape and then tape was out so they but it sounds like discontent like you're no, unhappy, right, right, right. But they had it like disc slash. Right, you know. right. That's a um, good name. Yeah. Um, so there was a guy working there that was also a huge Crows fan. So like he got he got like the promo copy or whatever, and then he dubbed it onto a cassette for me. Like I got it like the night before it came out or two days before it came out or something. But uh, I, I know. You know, what a lot of the fans think is like it's such a departure and, and you know, comparing it to, you know, what was going on in Morica like and Three, three Snakes, snakes. Yeah. And, and what was going on live in that way. Sure. You know, and of course, when you, you, you know, you take one third of the band out, you know, you take out Johnny and Mark, you know, especially Mark, people are like, you know, you know, you see the, for our generation, Black Rose, he's kind of like our, our Clapton is God yeah. kind of thing, you know. Um, so yeah, it's Fen and Oddly, um, but I, I thought it was great. You know, I, I didn't see it like as this huge departure completely from a Black Crow style. It's not like they made a, tried to make a grunge record or whatever. I mean, it, it wasn't like the hippie kind of jam thing, but it was riff rock, which, you know, I don't see that as not being part of their sound. You know, I, I at the time, like I really liked the production on it. Um, I know Rich has said in interviews that they tried to make them sound slick, but I, I just thought it was a very clean, you know, you know, yeah. seemed clean four four time, just rock record. It just, you know, it wasn't it's coming in three and a half, four minutes. There, you know, yeah. virtue and vice is longer, but it, it gets that good radio friendly format. Right. And, you know, for, of course, you know, by your side used to be if it ever stops raining. Yep. You know, I kind of like, you know, by your side lyrically and, and that it just kind of, you know, it makes more sense to me. Makes more sense. And the chorus just, if it ever stops raining, you know, that just kind of yeah. got repeated. And it's like, okay, what's he talking about? But that's Chris yeah. Robinson too. <laughs> um, I, you know, only a fool that changed like a little bit. Um, so... But I thought I, you know, there was, you know, there, and then there got to be a little bit of, you know, diamond ring, you know, catch with some hell, yeah. 
you know, the ring, she said my name. <laughs> well, you know, but I like Go Tell the Congregation. Okay. I mean, I do, really. And I, I see that as a kick-ass rock song, you know. I, you know, and I've, I've heard that, too. I've heard, like, that and, like, Horsehead get, get yep. some crap. But it's like, really? Because I think they're kind of heavy, you know. I mean, I think Go Faster is maybe a little more silly than those, you know, just it, lyrically. It is. It is. It's a little silly. But, you know, for me in that album, so that that's the – so I'm not going to – expand too much because if you listen to state of america last year i did a album review with those guys on by your side so if you really want to hear my opinion on everything check that out but i will say that is the album that got me back in the crows i was with them on shake your money maker and southern harmony musical companion and and honestly i'll admit like when america came out particularly then three snakes not really into what the band was doing at the time i was definitely listening to some harder rock maybe more the grungier stuff, or even in classic stuff, started getting into Who a lot. So I sort of bypassed um, those two albums. And then when I heard this, I was like, holy crap, this is great. Like, this reminds me of the punchy, um, harder, you know, catchier, a little bit more constrained stuff that had gotten me into the Crows. And I love that album. I like By Your Side, Virtue and Vice, Only a Fool, Go Faster. Um, you know, those are all kicking my heart around. Good, really good songs. I, you know, a couple clunkers, but it is a good album. Um, what was going on with rock music in the late '90s? I thought fit in very well. Goo Goo Dolls and and people like that were really big. The Crows kind of stuck to their guns with just clean rock, but it it, it kind of helped them with that radio format. So I really liked the album. That got me back in the Crows. I went and bought the Show Enough box set, which had the four first four albums on it mm-hmm. and like extras and all this stuff like that. And then I got reacquainted with Amorica. I listened to Three Snakes and One Charm, and I'm like. I dig it all. Like, so that album actually got me back into right. everything with the Black Crows. So right. I love it. You know, some people complain about this album because of what you talk about, but I unabashedly love it. I still stick to it. Great album. It's worth celebrating on its anniversary. You know, and kicking my heart around, to me, that's almost like a, a Crows classic kind of sound. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's almost like the same thing to me. Like, on it's War like Paint. a modern stone song almost. Right, you know, and on Warpaint, you know, Goodbye Daughters of the Revolution, that Great too was just like a classic Crow song. Yep. Um, I thought Only a, Only a Fool was very, it reminded me, I remember at the time, like I have a friend that lives in Minneapolis, he lived out in Santa Barbara then, so I, back then I was like writing letters. <laughs> Wait a minute, Santa Barbara, Minneapolis, a little bit climate difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was writing him letters about like my review of the, of the of By Your Side and I remember quoting, like, I thought Only a Fool had, like, an Aretha Franklin kind of thing. I thought it was, like, kind of had Muscle Shoals kind of vibe, kind of a Stax kind of vibe. Um, So, uh, yeah, I, um, like I said, I I don't see it as, like, a a huge departure on the Black Crows music or sound altogether from Three Snakes, sure, you know, I mean, but... uh, But what album have they sounded the same as another album in their history of doing records right right you can't yeah. look at two and say these two records sound the same they don't right you know to me more like and i, I we're, no, we're, we're kind of meandering off a little bit but i mean like before the frost and that stuff to me sounded the most like i mean it's the crows but it it, it almost went into country a, bluegrass crows right yeah kind of thing there so not my favorite but uh you know and speaking of by your side rich was the only guitar player on that and uh you know, that kind of segues into like, you know, we want to talk about how much of an influence Rich has been to a lot of guys, you know, CD player in my car. I got, uh, 
Whiskey Myers in there, their their record Mud, and uh, the song Frogman was co-written by Rich, and you can hear that in there. And, and if we ever get a chance to talk to those guys, I want to try to find out how that all happened. Oh, but, that'd uh, be a great story. You know, I mean, and then you know, of course, we've already talked to Scotty Bratcher, and he talked about that. You know, he's got a couple songs that just like I stole Rich. You know, yeah. And he goes, hey, you know, he he's upfront about it. Like I, you know, he's like, hey, I can't help how much of a huge, huge influence they are. You know. I think anybody doing this genre of music who is playing open tunings and slide and stuff is certainly influenced or fan of Rich Robinson. How can you not be? He's like, he's one of, I'll tell you this right now. He's one of the best rhythm players um, out there and maybe, you know, top 10 guy, maybe all time, 15 guy for sure, but modern guy, even though he can do lead stuff, but, what he does with the open tunings and the slide add all those nice parts and that give people like a Mark Ford and oddly free to Luther Dickinson an opportunity to do what they can with the lead parts too. It doesn't work without rich. I will say on the by your side album though, it's kind of interesting to have rich play all the parts because you hear him expand his repertoire with the repertoire a little bit with the soloing and stuff. And you hear elements of what became where he started probably with some stuff for a solo album. So you can hear like a horse head, which sounds similar to some of his solo albums and sort of what he was doing with that too. So it's interesting when you listen to By Your Side and you listen to the stuff that Rich has done, Post Crows or Solo, it, you can you can tell. You can tell that's a Rich album. You know, uh, the songs I know you and Enemy are both like, those should have been on Crows records. <laughs> they would have kept their shit together, you know? Yeah, it would have been good. I mean, he's done Especially a lot of I know stuff you. on his solos. Um. But uh, so, and that in turn uh, is a segue into our guest. <laughs> it is, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to talk about the guest or you want to talk about the guest? No, you go ahead. All right. So what I think is going to become a semi or regular occurrence with us, we started last month with the Southern Brotherhood. Uh, we're going to do an Across the Pond episode this week with a guy, with an artist who has fronts his own band. He's also part of a guitar super group in, in the U.K., um, his name is Mike Ross from the Mike Ross Band, and he absolutely is influenced by the Black Crows and blues music and Southern rock music, as you'll talk to. And he has a, a established relationship with Rich Robinson, where he did some guitar tech work with him when he toured on solo stuff uh, over in the UK, then also came over to the States to see that first Magpie show. So uh, a lot of the very, that's why this, uh, this conversation is very Crow centric. Anniversaries, Mark Ford. Mike Ross, all in that crow sphere. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate, you know, I was really, you know, pleased, impressed, you know, with Mike's, you know, knowledge of older music, you know, what, what influenced the crows, what influenced the stones. So you guys are going to dig this too. So let's go right to our interview with Mike Ross from the Mike Ross Band. <laughs> Welcome back to our interview here on this week on the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Jason, as always, we throw it to you to tell us who our guest is today for the listeners. Thank you, Brian. 
So we're doing another one of our famous, I guess I can call it famous. We've done one. This will be number two across the pond episodes with an artist over from uh, the Europe or the UK area. So we're really excited to have a fantastic solo artist, also a member of a super group from the UK, Mr. Mike Ross. How you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm good, Jason. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Thanks, Brian, too. Thanks. Thanks for getting on with us again. We're trying to keep this a new idea with this across the pond episode where there is so much good music coming over from not just the UK, but Europe in general. How can we tap into that to help support the blues, Southern rock music um, movement that we're, we're hearing and seeing a lot of, right, Brian? Correct. Yeah. You looks like you're sitting there in your studio. Looks a lot of uh, interesting things there behind you, Mike. Yeah. I, uh, this is what, what I call tone can studios. I mean, it's, it's it's a really small little building uh, in 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 my garden. Effectively, I live in the city, so we don't have much room. And I have this yeah. little space down here. And uh, yeah, this is where I record and and kind of hide from the children. And <laughs> that's smart. Always hiding from the children is a good idea. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a really. I mean, it's in in the lockdown. Obviously, you know, from last year, this has been. This was like my salvation, really, to be able to come down here and and create and and just have my own space. But yeah, it's packed with many an old amplifier, and there's there's all kinds of things here you can't see. I have lots of old effect pedals and guitars here and things. So is that a yeah. Supro amp behind you too, a Silverface, or what do we got? Uh, well, what can over you your, see over your right shoulder in the back? That's there you it, go. Yep, it's a Gretsch. Yeah, all so, Gretsch. Okay. It is. It's a Valco. They're made by. They're made in Chicago. So it's if it's Gretsch or if it's Supro or Valco, National, Regal. They're all the same thing. So I have two. I have that one there, and then I have a smaller one which is out of shot, uh, and then I have a newer Supro in one of these road cases here. Oh, nice. Okay. She has to put my glasses on to be able to see, but for the podcast, I need to look cool so I don't put them on. That's fair enough. <laughs> there, are, there are, yeah, many. I have a Leslie speaker here as well, and uh, like a whole bunch of old electroharmonics paddles that uh, like I've been collecting those for a long time, and I use them all. You know, I try. I was bef- right before this uh, conversation, I was sitting with my guitar and working on some new material. You know, so I have pull out three or four old units and maybe just get a little sound going. Tick tip the inspiration off and, and then on we go you know nice well mike uh just give us a little brief rundown of how you got your start well uh, i've been at it for quite some time although it wasn't always it's not a continuous journey i kind of got off for a little while but um i grew up listening to good music my folks were into good music 60s rock music or early 70s rock music and the stones particularly and the beatles I um they also had an ACDC album they had Back in Black and and that appealed to me and and I got into playing guitar because I really uh, just wanted to make the same kind of noise that I was hearing on Back in Black that was my that was my thing so eventually I got a guitar I got the wrong kind of guitar to make those kind of noises <laughs> I, 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 but I was very grateful for it I, I was I was bought a, a Stratocaster Strat and then, and then I just, I don't really remember. I think I just kind of dri- dropped off into some kind of, like I emerged about 18 months later 
and and I was ready to play in bands. You know, I don't I don't remember that period. I just remember getting this guitar, and then and then I guess I had some lessons for a while, and but I stopped going to the lessons when the teacher just asked me to. I he said, bring a cassette in, bring a cassette to the lesson, and, and we'll we'll work on a on one of your songs. You know, one of the songs that you like, and then. I realized that I could do that myself. <laughs> so, ah. so I just kept going. And, and then I was in bands from, yeah, like 16 on, really. Rock uh, bands? Rock bands, yeah, blues mostly, bands? Mostly. I mean, so I listened to lots of different classic, what people call classic, well, like old classic rock music is like Pearl Jam now, right? They yeah, call right. Yeah. They call Foo Fighters classic rock now. <laughs> I still think that stuff's really edgy and new. But, <laughs> you're, but you're hurting my feelings too. I think we're the same age. <laughs> for me, like classic rock would be Steppenwolf, you know, right. or, um, or Credence, or um, maybe Humble Pie or something. Yeah. But so, th- so that I was listening to Jimmy and, and to the Stones and Cream. And then uh, I, my, I, I was in, by this time I was in a band with a, just me and a drummer, and we had a we had a shed kind of like this. So we used to rehearse him at his mum's, and we would learn songs together. And his dad was a guitar player, good guitar player, and and a vintage equipment collector still is very well regarded in the UK. And um, he took us to see the Allman Brothers. Oh, nice. uh, the only English tour they ever did, I believe, or certainly the first English tour they'd ever done. Um, the only other time that they'd been over, were due to come over, was uh, when the, the tour that was cancelled after I think Barry died. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to ask you which version of who was playing guitars in, in that version. Well, Dickie was still in. It was 1990, I think 91. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure 91. Dickie and Warren. Dickie and Warren and Woody. Yeah. yeah, Woody was on bass still, and they had the uh, Latin guy with the percussion. Mark, so Mark Quinones, like that? I, I don't recall, but it was the really gnarly, grumpy, angry, <laughs> everybody except Woody and um, Warren and Warren were yeah. just so, oh, like <laughs> and Fred wasn't looking at anybody, you know. The, I remember the front on the B3, it was all hired equipment. The front fell and he just wouldn't play. He's put his hands up like this. And somebody, you know, came and fixed it. And then he would start playing again. But um, my life, I walked out of that show and my life has never been the same, you know. I was uh, stood right in front of Dickie and behind Dickie was Butch, you know. And mm-hmm. so I'm just looking. And I'd never really heard the music. My my friend was into this music, and we'd, I'd listened to it, but I hadn't really connected with it. But um, the very next, so we, we had that show, and they, they played for like two and a half hours, and then went off and came back on, and then they they played for like another forty minutes or something. Jessica and Whipping Post were the encores, I remember, and um, and I just absolutely absorbed every last like drop of it you know and dicky he gave me a pick he, he took a pick like and he bit it you know <laughs> handed it down to me because i was a really young 16 year old like, yeah terrified skinny big white t-shirt you know really short hair just kind of 
what the hell's going on here, you know? And then the, the very next morning, I bought the um, the first copy that I owned of uh, the Almonds at the Fillmore. Really. Oh, and then, well, yeah. And wow. I'm still learning things from that record. You know, it still teaches me things to this day. So, so that's when I got into playing the kind of you know it really started to connect with me and then yeah the, then he, about nine months later maybe we went to see the black crows for the first time nice and that's when i realized that really good looking chicks like this music too <laughs> <laughs> which, which tour was that well i saw him uh that would have been That was the shaky money maker tool, so there was no keyboards. Okay. Um, but maybe there was just no keyboards because it was the first time around the UK. But it yeah. was a small show. It was, you know, it was like a 250, 300 capacity venue in. I'm from the northeast of England, Newcastle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the I Riverside. Like here. Yeah. The, well, Brown Hill. That's just made round the corner from there. where we. So there's a bar called the Riverside at that time, and, and really small bands. We used to see lots of people go through their indie bands and kind of you know that era of, of, it, of rock music. So I saw them there, and then the next year they played in the City Hall in Newcastle, maybe two thousand people there, and um, and that was the Blues is Blood. Yeah, Blues is Blood. So the, the back end of the same tour we'd seen them on, but there were a lot more people that had Eddie, and okay. it had really gotten up for right. them, and they sold this place out. So we saw them there, and then they came back maybe a year later on the Southern Harmony the first time, and, and I saw them at both ends of that tour. And then, like, every time I've been, it's been possible to see them in the UK up until about 2000, 99, 2000. I saw them every time they came. And so you're then, a big Black Rose fan. Well, yeah, well, they were the only band that were kind of anything approximating my age that were playing music that I believed in, you know? Yeah, if I think back to bands that were around at that time, you know, like we talked, mentioned very briefly the Foo Fighters, and it's like, like it was cool, you know, so it was okay, you know? And, and I remember dancing to Nirvana in the in the clubs and 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 maybe Alice in Chains, and it was like it was Pearl Jam. It was okay. It wasn't bad, but right. the Black Rose were playing something spiritual, mm-hmm. which I've come to understand as, as a, like a fundamental of, of Southern rock, as I, as I understand it, you know. And then having already loved the Stones, growing to increasingly love the Allman Brothers band, I grew up also listening to Aretha and, and Otis Redding and... Mm-hmm. And and so, anything anything that comes out of Memphis, I think, really. I hadn't joined so many dots then, but I, I was never so much of a fan of Motown. I always thought it was a bit bit uptown for me. But I really liked Stax records, you know, muscle and what and what I came to understand as being muscle shows, be it mm-hmm. be it the Rolling Stones or Aretha or Percy Sledge or whoever it was. My as soon as I started to kind of research it and get behind that, I realized that it was all coming out of a relatively small area of the south, you know, between yeah. maybe Atlanta to Muscle Shoals to Memphis, you know, that, that kind of triangle. And I've spent my whole life since really kind of working within that, went off into 
after my early bands the first band that i got into that that we ever really did anything with we were um we were listening to the small faces a lot mm-hmm. but listening to booker t and the mgs so it's kind of the same thing we we were we we called ourselves mods we weren't mods and it was before the i mean we liked the music but we were never that well dressed we were too poor but um we liked that style and, and that was you know that kind of soul going on rock was was the direction of the band the organ and um and that was kind of pre brit pop pre the, there were still indie bands brit pop right. hadn't swept them all off so we had to kind of like i guess we played the other guys in the band were more into that sort of music and i kind of went with it because they were it was a good band but wherever possible i'm like no man let's just do like a big three chord chorus that goes on for 15 minutes with loads of backing vocals and loads of guitars you know <laughs> and um and then from there yeah different different bands all the way through and and then i write in and play in and it's it's hard it's hard in the uk or it was hard then it's it, people now southern rock is a term now that mm-hmm. that the, you know, I was stunned a few years ago, you know, and, and I mean like two or three years ago when when somebody knew what I meant when I said that, you know, when somebody said, oh, you like Leonard Skinner. And I'm like, yeah, man, like Leonard Skinner, like um, d- like little feet, you know, these mm-hmm. these th- this the world is kind of it's almost like it's come full circle for me now for me being the only one of two people that had ever heard that the uh, heard the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore East. Wow. Trying to work with people who it was so disconnected from from music. People had listened to the obvious records, you know, the Stones and what have you, but they really hadn't got that kind of it. It's jazzy, but it's not fusion yet. It's bluesy, but it's not it's not too Chicago. It's not too overblown. It's it's Southern rock. You know, it's it's all of these components kind of coming together. It's soul, but it's not uptown sort of slick things with big horn arrangements so through I, just through not knowing people that that either listened to it or, or could play it and I, I always kind of was a bit starved of that until much later and eventually i took a break from playing music maybe 15 years ago something yeah, about that now, about 15 years ago. And it took about effectively like a 10-year break, really, from from trying to write songs. Uh, five-year break, rather. It took a five-year break from writing. Still played a bit of guitar, still did the odd kind of cover show or something, but mm-hmm. but wasn't really working at it because I just was just disconnected. I didn't understand modern rock. I had no interest in slipknot i had no interest in in any of the stuff that that was kind of around you know and then later i came in through the blues circuit which which i don't know what it's like in the states in the in the in the in the uk there are some good bands that work in that in the genre okay but there are a lot of like rich white kids with strats you know and um kind of the vehicle is the song is the vehicle for the solo and it, you know I, I don't know how much of it pervades in in the american scene but th- there's a lot of a lot of really average music in my experience has been mm-hmm. kind of served up as being blues mm-hmm. almost to the point where a lot of the audience 
the younger audience just aren't connecting with it because it's just not that great, you know. Mm-hmm. But there are good bands working in it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I never see ne- at that time when I was younger, I, it was not something I'd ever really wanted to work in because it was a bit stiff. You know, in, a lot of English people, they're just not that. They just not. They just don't swing. You know, they just haven't got a groove. They haven't. They haven't got that pocket, that late kind of feel that that um, it kind of went away around the time that punk came in. You know, and, and it never really punk kind of killed cool guitar playing. You know. <laughs> put it into it put it into life supports you know for, for a very long time so uh kind of came back through a friend of a friend introduced me to somebody who was able to get me a few shows and and i started resurrecting some of my original material which mm-hmm. never really landed it's the, the more soulful stuff the more southern stuff was that the Spindrift record of 2014 or something else? Yeah, well, I actually recorded that in 2008. Okay. Um, so I'd been in these bands, and we and we were like not indie bands, but we were playing the indie circuit. Oh, I was, you know, it wasn't an indie band. It was, um, it was like, you know, I was listening to. Well, I'll tell you about this later. Probably we'll talk about it. But recently, I've been going back through a lot of stuff from that time late 90s and it sounds like government mule there you go go ahead it's a great thing to sound like but i didn't know that then i knew who warren was because i was i had been to see him when i was a teenager sure um but really i still hadn't i still hadn't fully digested the 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 duane version of the almonds you know i wasn't ready for 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 the later version although i did have seven turns and um and the one the album after so i was familiar with some of like contemporary home and stuff but i i never reached out into into that because i was still filling in the gaps i was still listening to the band and and like and war and discovering the roots of what people call americana now you know that kind of thing that that was more where my focus lay as a songwriter but coming back into the scene now so actually no i'll backtrack so from being in these bands that i was trying to write these these songs that that maybe were like a a a sellable version of what i liked and not really getting very far and that's when i gave up really and then but I, i kept i kept trying to sort of restart it wasn't like i just turned my back on it it was like a load of a bunch of false starts so 2008 I went into a studio in Brighton with some friends and spent a, a day recording. Excuse me. I love New York mug. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the last one. I brought six back last time I went, and they're, they're, it's all break. They get smashed up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's my last one. So, so we went and we did these tracks, and and it was what became about a third of Spindrift. Yeah. So. Oh, we did very, they were very, very quick. We recorded them live and then I opened up the electric guitar and I thought, well, I'll put that out in 2009. That's what I'll do. I'm going to do something like this in 2009. So we worked on it just a few days, a few months apart in some cases. And then just kind of finishing it around Christmas of 2008. And then my now ex-partner, uh, she, she became pregnant. So that got put on the shelf and it was on my iPod. <laughs> which just shows how the long old radio dial ipod right the non-touch screen one. so it was pretty it was pretty good for the time you could watch movies yeah. on it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember when that one came. I, 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 I pod video or whatever. That was amazing. That's it. it was color screen. And yeah, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. And it's, yeah, it is, it's not that long ago. But um, so I had this record and but I never did anything with it. And because suddenly I had to just go and earn, earn a bunch of money so that my wife could take time off work and spend the first year at home and and then like then I, that led me to take in another job i worked in music shops for a lot of my life okay. as well so it's like th that's almost the worst job if you're a musician because it's kind of close enough to the thing that you want to do that you think you should be fulfilled but actually it's really nothing to do with being a musician you're it's watching a, everybody else be a musician while you're yeah. working yeah. yeah, and and then hating them for it as well. Right, <laughs> <laughs> understandable. Mm, so I, so I did that, and then um, it wasn't until 2014 that I eventually released Spindrift. Yeah, so I was coming back. I had actually broken up with my my ex, my son's mom, and I guess that was the catalyst. You know, I, I moved out and I, I had my own place again, and I had a lot of time on my hands, and. Um, and I was just kind of discovering what that was like to be an adult that didn't live with somebody else, you know. Mm -hmm. And then and, and I took that opportunity to cram a load of music back into my life before it got filled up with with other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so I it began with releasing Spindrift, which came out. It was like a, it was a joke. Nobody ever picked up on it. But it came it came out on April Fool's Day. I put it out on the 1st of April, just laughing to myself because I thought, that, you know, this is nothing's ever going to happen. I didn't know what to do with it, but I had it. It was, you know, it's a good sounding record. There's, there's songs on there that I've gone on to play all over the world and and will continue to play whenever we can get back out on the road, you know. But it was really with the next record, with Jenny's Place, that um, that I actually started to get a bit closer to that Allman Brothers thing, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of perfectly overdriven guitar, those the the the, the drum the, the the driving beat that you could yeah. solo, over, but was the organ the Hammond, yeah, a little bit more play coming to play, yeah, yeah, it really started to come together, and and then from from then on, really, um, I took a bit of a sidestep with musically because I went, I got the opportunity to go to uh, Nashville maybe three years ago now to make a record. A friend of mine lives out there, invited me out, introduced me to some players. So I, I, I made like, you know, a much more, it's it's not really an acoustic record, but it's not a blues record per se. You know, it's more like a maybe a Steve Earle kind of sounding thing. Is that the so Clovis Limit part one? That's the first Clovis Limit. Yeah, yeah. But all the time I've been playing since I came back out swinging in about 2015, 2014, 2015, certainly, with the three or four piece band, the the live show has always been about, I guess, like kind of government mule, mm -hmm. one guitar, Allman Brothers, cross with Credence, kind of, kind of set. But getting that on record took a bit, you know, getting it on a release to the to the level that I wanted that I was really comfortable with it really came with my current record Clovis 2 and that was the first time I had this mm -hmm. so I spent there was that was quite a long recording process because there was some quite big gaps for touring but so I had did the basic tracks 
did a lot of thinking about it, did a bit of work, did a lot of thinking about it, then came back. So I was, and, and actually, you know, having a Leslie, having Marshalls, having everything I wanted, and the time of not paying, you know, 350 bucks a day to track in a big studio, it really allowed me the, the indulgence of time. And so it's with Clovis too that I feel like I've really landed with that kind of perfect mix of song and solo and groove and you know really it's really kind of come into its own you know yeah and that one to me is really you know you, you call it a government mule or almond brothers that one to me sticks out the most of really being in that vein of grasping americano southern rock but with with blues or soul uh, mm. influences on it you know i think i i didn't write the sound I should have. One of the there's an instrumental on that album that sounds very Almond Brothers ish with the guitar harmonies and stuff. Really yeah. cool. I mean, this first thing I thought of was like, man, this this is like almost like a Jessica or something like that. It's awesome. Well, that that track's called Unforgiven. And there we uh, go. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, if you, I, one of you just ordered the CD, didn't you? That must have been Brian. I bet. Did you order? If I haven't ordered it, I will be ordering it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talk to you guys talk. to make sure you're cool first, and then we buy your stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you in Wisconsin? No. Jason's in Ohio. Yep. I'm in North Dakota. Oh, okay. So there's somebody. Okay, there's somebody called Brian from Wisconsin. Okay. Uh -oh, okay. Both CDs yesterday. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I wondered if it was you. But um, well, I can send. I mean, I should send you the. Uh, I can send you the digital. What I did with Clovis Two, one of the things that I did, is that the version you get on the streaming service is the, it's it's kind of the the neat and tidy streaming version. If you put the CD on, it plays like one long song. So it crossfades into, and the mixes are different. So they're like there's like more guitar, and there's some synthesizer things, and it's a little bit more. Uh, I mean, it's like a tiny bit more space rock. It's not space rock, right? It's maybe like something off metal by Pink Floyd. It's like a bit more of the jam element of it comes out. Jam prog southern yeah. rock. Yeah, but it's but they're just like hints, you know, rather yeah. than. I mean, you know, Southern Rock to me is prog rock insofar as that that's about as far as I get into it. You know, that that free expression. And then sometimes I just like the sound of a, a moog, you know, kind of moog. Yeah, bang, yeah, yeah. Bit of 70s sci-fi thing. So so the song Unforgiven, the tune Unforgiven that you mentioned was originally, and um, it's kind of, I heard it like something off of Who's Next. So it's like a, I had no guitar melodies. It was not going to be uh, anything to do with twin guitars. It was. It, it sounded like the Who, and mm -hmm. it had a synthesizer for the bass line and and this other kind of stuff going on, and a vocal line. And so the demo, that's what it sounds like. And then we went into the studio and recorded the basic tracks. And then I had begun work on what I thought would be the only version we'd ever do, which was this kind of you know more proggy thing but um i had a friend here in the uk and unfortunately he, he died he passed away mm, but, hear that. yeah it, it's a real shame is it a british guitar player called jules fothergill and he was he was well known remains well known in the uk but he was a huge allman brothers fan like he was a he was like a deadhead taper 
he would contact people in the States 25 years ago and do the tape trading thing. It's kind of pre-eBay, yeah. pre that being possible. He was like subscribing to, you know, he's a massive, massive almonds fan. He's bigger almond, biggest almonds fan I've ever met. And he and I developed the friendship because we both had this just passionate love of Dwayne Almond's guitar sound at the Fillmore. And I'd, I, so I worked up this alternate version of Unforgiven with twin guitars. And the idea was, well, we could do this. It'd be fun. It'd be a laugh. So I put it together. And unfortunately, as I say, we never got to, we never got to do it because he was, he was diagnosed with cancer and was like dead seven weeks later, something like that. Oh my gosh. It's really shocking. So we never, we never really got it. So, so I, so in the end, I, I continued with it. I kind of toyed with the idea of asking a a friend, somebody else to, to do it. But I thought, you know, I'm going to do it. And then I just, and so we just, it's like my own little tribute to Jules really. So once it became a tribute, I, I guess I allowed myself to maybe sail a bit closer to the ABB wind <laughs> than I would have done otherwise. And uh, a friend of mutual friend of Jules and mine, a guy called Rob, who plays amongst other things, he plays organ. So he put the, um, I, I asked him to contribute on that in that spirit of it being for Jules. And so he came up with, he took like 30% of whipping post and added it to, 30% of dreams and then had like 30% of Rob <laughs> and, and, and we just, we really made it exactly be that because just a joyful noise, you know, uh-huh. guitars in that context here in the UK, mostly apart from Jessica, which was used on the UK top gun, top gear. Yeah. Theme. Yeah. I saw uh, slash play that on one of the episodes. There too. You go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was really late, but it had been used since the, for a long, long time, anyway. Uh, they changed it eventually. But aside from that, nobody had ever heard of the Almonds, except maybe they'd heard of Greg because he was married to Cher. You know, that, Everybody that, knows Cher. Yeah. She's universal. Yeah, exactly. So that was our <laughs> only connection. But so in the UK, Twin Guitar Band is Thin Lizzy. Huh. That's, that's, and it's, so it's that, and it's very much associated with, with that what i call cock rock yeah you know, yeah the mid 70s hard rock thing that that just really doesn't do anything for me because it's a bit silly i found it a bit <laughs> because i like the older brothers you know right 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 you know sure. I like the older brothers and the older brothers have got soul and so you were listening to thin lizzy or slade or any of that okay no no the, as far as i would ever get into that would be the earlier humble pie stuff yeah, Peter Frampton, you know, fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, and Steve Marriott, I came into them through the small faces, and mm-hmm. then it splits into the faces and humble pie. Right. And fantastic, you know, the first, the first, up to maybe Rock in the Film or that the humble pie record, it's just incredible. You know, people have slept on humble pie forever. Like you never hear about humble pie being an influence or a building block for the modern day Southern blues that you hear, you know, these days, you think of Peter Frampton and Frampton comes alive, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's right in there, but I guess, you know, knowing as, as I do, the kind of sad financial history of that 
and Steve, you, you know, he was he was susceptible to getting kind of too drunk, getting mm-hmm. too high. He didn't have like a Peter Grant looking after him. He, he, you know, he'd, he'd had uh, he'd had a bad the small faces had a very bad business experience with Don Arden. So Sharon, uh, Sharon Osborne's dad. Yeah. Kind of took all their money off them before they'd ever had any and they, and they never caught up. So they, you know, their, their record, their recording stuff's a bit patchy and, and they, they kind of just kind of faded out, I think in such a way as, you know, that maybe they, they wouldn't have had if they'd have had a better support network, but, but those early records, uh, the album Humble Pie and Eat It and then Rockin' Fillmore. This is good as you get. Oh, yeah. But they do tip over a bit for me into that kind of slightly too heavy, slightly too fast, slightly too misogynistic kind of lyrics, you know, a bit cocaine-y. So, <laughs> <laughs> You're a true gentleman. <laughs> well, not that I have anything against, you know, like I'm, I'm a huge Stephen Stills fan, and he's oh, a, yeah. he was a huge cocaine fan. Yeah, 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 you know. Uh, I love the one you're with, as long as it includes cocaine. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that, so I'm, I don't mind that. You know, the, the early part, well, I mean, I say I don't mind it, but, you know, anybody can do what they like. But it's the influence on the music that it, it really did take, the, take a lot of the spirit out of it. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you kind of brought up an interesting point too. I want to go back to you said you guys were doing twin guitar bands where that wasn't a thing in in England and I mean or the UK. I mean that's true because you look at they've had great guitarists, great guitar bands. Uh, you know, Zeppelin. You throw Zeppelin in and some other bands that you mentioned and stuff too. Single guitars, the Who single guitar, and like you're right. Like there really wasn't a whole dominant double guitar band really that came out of the UK. No. Besides the Stones. Besides, well, the Stones, I left them off intentionally, but right. like, I mean, everybody else, you think of all these, you know, there's a lot of stuff that Clapton did, um, same thing, right? Like, there wasn't a whole lot of, huh, interesting. But I guess, you know, there there are some good, obviously the Stones is a good example where there's two guitar players. Right. But I guess specifically when it comes to the way like that... Like two lead. Yeah, the way, the way that Dwayne and Dickie supported each other. Yeah. You know how you see that in in Leonard Skinner, how you see it mm-hmm. in Hatchet, how you see it in Southern Rock, because obviously they all learned it from from the Almonds and from being in the South and hearing guitars playing with pedal steel as well. That's a big part of it. In in the UK, because we there's a there's a lot less of an understanding of the country influence on Southern Rock, or there was. You know, uh, uh, there's a lot of resistance to country music here. I don't understand it personally because it's 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 this. Like, people say to me, you, "You are you a country blues singer?" <laughs> I say, it's all the same thing, man. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's all you know. It's like you write your songs from the country, you play your solos from the blues, and right. melodies, you know. And but your drums come from soul, you know. That's right. That's the that's the the ingredients. Of the, of so, so you're not going to places to play back when we could get out to play and they're saying, Hey, we only play two types of music here, country <laughs> and Western. <laughs> I, I just have to say I'm a blues artist, man, because it's right. the only area of this, that the, it's the, actually that's not true, but I'll finish my point. Coming from that standing start, maybe 2015 beginning of that, 
being booked to play original music, you know, to get paid to play original music is a gift, was a gift to me. Wow, you know, this is amazing. And and getting applause, my song Dark Powder from Jenny's Place, which is a 12-8 minor blues um, that that is inspired by Peter Green and Dwayne Allman. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, or, or like Boz Skaggs or something like that. To go out to get paid to play that and to have people applaud after the solo and to come and buy this the album later and talk about it was an entirely new experience for me. You know, sure. it's the acceptance that came through. So you know, I was quite I, and I remain grateful for anybody that wants to book me. Yeah, uh, you know, going into playing blues festivals and blues clubs. But I would still play what I consider like outlaw country songs, mm-hmm. you know. But they're my songs, and and they've got my guitar playing, in, and people seem to like my guitar playing. So therefore, I'm like, well, you came to see me, so here's this. I, I you know, I get really bored when you go and see a band, and they and they stay in a in a strict kind of genre all night, you know, a certain tempo pattern or key feel you know i get i get bored i don't listen to music like that and i never oh you like the jam the experimental stuff the stay you know yeah not just play directly off the record in your three or four minutes for song yeah. and and also just different this light and shade you know so yeah. so to play something that's got like a bit of a you know like a train song kind of a groove you know mm-hmm. and something else which is a a, a mid-tempo blues something else that's that's a bit more aggressive you know, so, but I guess my experience of doing that in the blues clubs is sometimes they don't like it. Sometimes they're quite, yeah. you know, they, they because they've grown used to that clean, clean shaven, short haired, politely mannered strap playing 22 year old <laughs> that's going to, you know, impress you with his uh, Dial Bramwell impression. I don't know. Right, right. Um, you know that's kind of what they're expecting. Then you get this hairy guy turn up. That <laughs> you look play. like this Almond Brothers guy. Yeah, I might play fifteen minutes. You look so. a little bit like Rich Robinson, to be honest with you. And I was like seeing some of your pictures and watching the videos. I'm like, man, you look a little bit like Rich Robinson. Yeah, it's been said before, and and yeah. I, I I've used it to my advantage a few times. <laughs> Backstage. We'll get into those stories at the back end of the interview. Trust me. Uh, that was when I was much younger. When when we used to go to the rock clubs and I and I used to... we'll put a disclaimer on everything. Don't worry. No, no, I no. I never names. intentionally pretended. But, um, no, yeah, I do have that kind of vibe. So you know, that's the area that I that I have built this new reputation in. Yeah. Blues clubs, blues festivals, and then my own headlining shows. With the Clovis Limit Part Two, I've been working with a uh, a PR team and a, a radio team that and and actually just because of because of some I remember a line that I heard Dylan say in a documentary when he released Blonde on Blonde, where he said um, Blonde on Blonde is the first time that he listened to what other people were listening to at the time. So he said, I'm going to have a listen to what is on the radio before I make this record. And so he comes out with Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And he comes out with 
you know, brand new pel- leopard skin pillbox hat. And, and I mean, it's obviously it's nothing like anybody else's music, but it has it just has something that maybe unlocks a key that unlocks to some people. And I felt like with song with my song, None of Your Business, which I would have discarded at a different point in my career because it was a bit simple, but because it fit the mood that I was in when I was wanting to make this record and I was angry and, you know, kind of wanted to shout at some people. Um, but that opened the door for me for rock radio. And then when you're open, then you're in there. And then all of the, all the Southern rock guys are coming gambling up going, we know what you like. <laughs> mm-hmm. We get it. You know, we hear that, you know, so, so I've been able to, it is my hope that, that once, once we're able to start working again, probably next year now, I would have thought, given the crisis. That everybody seems they would to be- get the vaccine out a lot quicker than they are everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, that's another conversation, but yeah, it's going to be a while. But w- when that comes off, assuming that there is still a habitable world, then hopefully I'll be able to get a bit more work out with with these um, in, in these kind of more rock orientated audiences certainly the new material i said to you before we started that i couldn't get my microphone working because i'd reconfigured my my uh, computer here because i was demoing something and again and the working title of that is kick like a mule so oh. <laughs> you know the idea i've been listening to particularly the um some of the the more recent live stuff that the mule have been doing that it's really yeah. connected with me so oh warren haynes is just amazing yeah but you see going back to being that version of me that was listening to maybe ryan adams oh there you go 89 and thinking i want to write songs that are as meaningful as the steve earl stuff i'm hearing and the guitar have really kind of took a side step you know maybe by the early 2000s it really wasn't that i've remained the guitar player that i've always been but i wasn't really shining a light on it um, and then at that time, listening to Warren, I'm a bit like, God, it reminds me of Thin Lizzy. It's a bit hard. It's a bit, it's a bit much, you know. But I feel like the, the maybe not being in the almonds or the almonds, you know, not existing anymore, has brought something else to Mule that I don't hear in some of the older records, you know. Uh, and and also listening to more of the live stuff. So anyway, the. Um, researching doing a bit of research in the bob dylan mold of listening to what other people might be listening to and then using that to reframe some of the stuff i've been writing all along i think it can only do everybody good because if i can if i can appeal to those guys then nobody loses you know you were mike you're talking about how over there uh you know on the radio, you're not hearing a lot of like the, the stuff that we're into for a while. And, and honestly, it's the same way over here. Um, one band that I always want to ask about from people from the UK and what their take on is it take on uh, is the London choir boys, you mm-hmm. know, cause I've, I've heard, you know, Steve Gorman from the, from the black crows has kind of, kind of seemed to say they were kind of like, you know, you know, produced by somebody to make them look like, you know, an authentic rock band. So I'm just wondering from your guys' take over there. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, boy band. But um, <laughs> now, now, I I can't, I have to feel at this point that that I, I want to introduce the, 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 I want to bring the dogs to more to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the dogs, 
I actually I'm good friends with the bass player from the dogs, the original bass player from the dogs, Steve. Um, so go back to that period. I was I wasn't listening to it when it was the most active here, but the choir boys were the biggest kind of breakthrough rock band that looked anything like that in that mm-hmm. period. It had a song called Seven O'Clock. I don't know if you recall it. And and it wasn't a particularly good song, but it charted in the UK. It was very it was it was a bit like a slowed down stay with me by the faces. Right. And yeah. and, and that their album it, their album isn't terrible, you know, that their, their, their first album the first big album um a little bit of what you fancy but um and i listened to it quite a lot actually at the time but only until i listened until until more black crow stuff became available only until i actually bought it's not as good as a wing by the faces and went hang on a minute that's so there's a song on the choir boys first album which is what is it while had me a real good time by the faces is it while I was here, I had me a real good time and I was glad to go. There's a there's a there's a track on the Choir Boys album called Misled. And it's the same. It's the same. It's there it is note for note, but Spike had never heard the the Spike's the singer in the Choir Boys. I believe he had never heard the the, the faces. The mm. others had done it, and then he apparently he sang a different melody or something anyway no i think they're a bit silly but they've they've hung on they they, they got a bit of early success chart success because they had and 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 still have uh quite a good management team that you know so the so the they don't call them the london choir boys here they call them the choir boys right Mm. i think they changed the name officially to that yeah try to get us like yeah yeah sure yeah but the I know that they, so BAM, the reason I want to talk about the dogs more is that the, the dogs were, the dogs were a bit more believable. They're still a bit silly between you and me. They still look a bit like Errol Flynn pirates, you know, and, <laughs> and Steve is scathing, as you mentioned in his, Steve Gorman, he was very, he, he, uh, he's very scathing of the dogs more. The, the crows were touring, opening for the dogs in the UK when moneymaker went platinum the first time okay and so um and although steve because because at that time the dogs were quite big in the uk and they'd had burning tree opening for them and then the dog the crows came over and opened for them so they 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 were like for a little while the dogs were at the top of that tree in terms of like credibility they did they had a they had a pretty good record but the choir boys, uh, you know, they were, I guess Spike was quite pretty when he was young. Uh, you know, they, they had that thing. But they're all a bit fat and bald and Botox now, aren't they? And, <laughs> um, but still still going at it. And Bam, who's the drummer in the Dogs, uh, he he lives in Florida now. He's married to Bam. He's married to um, oh, Cher from Vixen. Um, the, the, oh. The, oh, Cher Peterson? Yeah. No yeah, Cher Ross now. So, so Bam Ross and Cher Ross, and they live down in Florida. And uh, and he's he was a drummer. He was a drummer in the Wild Hearts. Did you get the Wild Hearts? No, no. I, I've heard no. of them. Yeah. I, well, the, the guitar player for the Choir Boys, because the Choir Boys are from the northeast of England, where I'm from. 
that's how I kind of I have a bit more information than some people yeah. might because <laughs> I well, I knew people. But Ginger was the original guitar player for the Choir Boys. They kicked him out, uh, and they got somebody else. And then um, and then Ginger formed a band called the Wild Hearts that were quite good, and they're still around. Or Ginger's still around. And and Bam played with them, and then Bam is was doing the tour drumming for the Choir Boys when the Choir Boys had to come home last year partway through a U- US tour because of the pandemic breakout. Mm-hmm. But they they I don't think you'll there, there is a kind of sleaze rock glam rock UK rock new wave of classic rock kind of scene, and they're known on that scene, but okay. they're not. Yeah, they're not they're not Southern rock though, are they? <laughs> One band that that just that got me into like checking out other bands of this genre, you guys in the UK is I'm wondering if you know uh, the guys in Maker. Yeah, I know Andrew. Oh, I know all of them actually. Yeah, I know cool. them well. I actually, how did I meet them? So I, it was through Rich Robinson. Actually. Yeah, he produced some stuff for them in Woodstock. Later, yeah, that was later. So I met I met Maker in 2016. So I had been, I, I, we haven't talked about it yet, but, but through my relationship with Rich Robinson, Rich had introduced me to an old friend of his from Atlanta, a guy called Andrew, Andrew Silar, in a band 6875. Have you know those guys from, from, um, they're from, no. No, okay. I know the 2220s, but not the 6875s. 6875s. So Andrew, Andrew is a guitar player, and he has a singer, Susie, and they were touring the UK. They were they're small grassroots DIY, whatever you want to call them, artists that arranged a, a short tour of the UK. And I think that maybe just because of the the, the Donaldson brothers um, and Ali from Maker having gone to a lot of Crow's shows and then gone to Rich Robinson solo shows and they kind of, you know, struck up a friendship that turned into a bit of a working relationship. Um, but Rich introduced me to Andrew because uh, Andrew had reached out to Rich asking for any UK hookups, any assistance, and he introduced him to me. And um, and I, I basically just smoothed the waters on a couple of things for them. I got them some lone amplifiers and things. So anyway, they, they, they played a show in in Camden and I went up and Maker were on the bill. And that's that's how I got introduced to them. And and also a friend of mine and a sometime musical compact collaborator of mine, Roscoe Levy, who um, I was in a little a band with for a while called um, called Warus. He he used to work for the the Donaldson brothers. They they were Tylers. They actually so he he worked for them. So there is a bit of a Kent connection with that, and they they kind of have that slightly East End foppy sort of faces thing going on with the scarves and the you know that the image thing. The first time yeah. I ever heard "Girl Quit Your Crying," it was like you know like it sounds so much like the Crows. Well, I think I'm fairly certain that Rich had. Ali earmarked to be a collaborator in the singing side of things. Okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, Ali didn't want to do it. So Ali Ali is the one that's kept that band going way past where a lot of bands would have given up. 
because he is so dedicated to it. Ali, the singer in Maker. Mm-hmm. The Donaldsons, uh, I mean, I love Gavin's drums. I th- don't drum in, I think it's great. And, and, and Andrew's a great guitar player as well. But they're a little bit more like family guys. They're a little bit more settled. That I'm sure, I think that were it not for Ali saying, come on, come on, crack the whip, let's get going, let's get going then they're probably, there's a good chance they would have faded out. But Ali keeps them going. And yeah, eventually, so I, well, I've been backstage with the with all of those guys and Rich, like in 2014 or something, but I didn't get to see them until, until this 2016 show. And yeah, they're good, but you never see them. They never do any playing or anything. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, yeah, that's what it seems like. Hmm. Well, let's stick on the Black Crows theme here for a couple of different reasons. One, we're recording this podcast on January 12th. Which in Black Crow's history is the release date of their fifth studio album, By Your Side. Oh, okay. So I'm going to throw that nugget out before I go to my question. I love By Your Side. I know it's a little controversial with some people, but I like I like that. We won't get into that. Um, I like it you, too. See? It, it, I was on a Black Crow's podcast, the State of America, who are friends of Brian and I, who do a Black Crow's podcast to right. talk about that album. Because I'm like, I will defend that album. There's a couple of clunker songs, but it's a good album. Um, so it's history. It is the anniversary of that being released. You have a pretty good relationship with uh, uh, Rich, but you know him or some of the guys from the Black Crows through uh, some of your history. Would you, you know, and when we're big Black Crows fans, you're you're a Black Crows fan. Will you kind of talk us through a little bit of how you kind of became friends or, or like you know around Rich? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know the as you said, a long history of attending Crow's shows. The uh, the first time I got mistaken for Rich. <laughs> <laughs> and you do, like, look at the pictures on the internet. Yeah. Go to MikeRossMusic.com, not UK, and look at the pictures. Well, you know, when, I don't know about you, but, you, but I, this is, I find this common kind of, this shared experience around the release of Southern Harmony. Because when, Shaky Moneymaker came out, and this is no means disrespectful to the Crows, but they looked a little generic, generic, tight jeans, cowboy boots, over the jeans, silk shirts, leather jackets. They were kind of an identikit because, of course, they were trying to break right. through. But and I didn't look anything like that because I was whenever, however it was, 16, 17, I was still growing my hair. I was still my jeans were still baggy. I didn't I didn't really have my shit together, you know, but but by the time. Southern Harmony came out. My hair was long. I had flares. I, you know, we were able to buy some Indian shirts. We were experimenting with scarves, and you know, we 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 were playing with the look. And my my and uh, uh, my old old friend had, had a um, when Southern Harmony came out in the big record store, the HMB record store in Newcastle. They had a big window display. You remember they used to have window displays. Mm-hmm. For- Mm-hmm. with little so they they had a the the picture from the cover really blown up to almost life size so it was like five foot high cardboard thing um and then oh, different bits and pieces of it and, and and if if you if you were in the know you could go and ask to be given this when they were getting rid of it and yeah i think mm-hmm. you'd have walking by and they were going to throw it in the bin and came home with the whole thing and yeah it on his wall yeah and so we put that up and we would we would just like stand in front of it and take photographs and pretend i pretend to be rich and he pretend to be mark or pretend to be chris and then we would go out to the nightclub 
And so the so the, the first time when they came through to play the uh, is it high as the moon? Is that the Southern Harmony tour? Yeah, 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 yeah. With the with the ropes, the one with the mm-hmm. ropes the, with the nets, mm-hmm. opening to no speak, no slave, and 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 so I we had front row or third row seats in this venue, and it's a little bit like uh, you know, like a. You have I've been to venues similar to it in on the West Coast, like big old theatres, two thousand seats, you know, a couple of rows. So when the lights went down for the uh before the or maybe it was when the when the ropes before the ropes went up anyway, we kind of scrambled and there were no crowd barriers or anything there. There's just like there's just the stage, clunk and the monitor, clunk and rich. And they just stayed there for the whole show, you know. And um, and then that was basically where wherever we went to see the crows after that time, that's where I'd end up. I'd be as close in front of Rich as possible. And then through a very long winded process of association, it came to pass that that I ended up backstage for um, after a London show in 2013. It was Good Friday uh, on 2013. And they were playing one of two nights at the Forum in, in Kentish Town in London. And I went with a friend of mine who knows um, Red, the guitar tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, Doug Redler, Rich's long-term guitar mm-hmm. tech. So through, a fr- through him, we ended up with these backstage passes and after-show passes. So I went up into the... Um, backstage and i was quite nervous I, because i've been fans forever never met them like i had a couple of signatures from over the years from rich and johnny colt was always the friendliest mm-hmm. the others they, we used to call the other ones all kinds of names because they, <laughs> <laughs> but johnny was always come and say hi you know and um, johnny and and actually even jeff jeff early on he, you know they were the guys that were that were quite friendly but anyway i got backstage and i got to meet this guy and I got to meet Rich for the first time and went over and I said, I'm sorry, I'm I'm probably going to embarrass myself here because I'm just such a huge fan. So, and he's like, you're the guy, you're the guy that stands in front of me in an English show. <laughs> you're the guy. <laughs> so we, I went, yeah, man, this me. So I'll always be like 10 feet right in front of you and just watching all of your guitar changes and trying to figure out what tunings you're using. Right, right. But he was super impressed because it wasn't long after the flood. You know, they had the flood. Yeah, they ruined his guitar it, collection and yeah. all that. Yeah, from the hurricane. So, yep. Yeah, so he had... Um, I actually know the guy that was driving for Rich at that time. Because um, he was in the UK just after that happened, doing a solo tour. A very small run of shows. And um, But this would have been sort of the February after march after that and he was uh bring mostly mostly new guitars red gave us a stage tour so we'd actually had a look at the i had i had friends in the audience texting me going mike what the fuck are you doing on stage (laughs) (laughs) i'm like stood in front of rich's paddleboards you know and having a conversation with the with the other guitar tech about a faulty pickup on one of sven's bases so very much in there uh, but when I got to chatting to Rich and we were talking and I'm going, so what about the 68 telly? What happened to that? Oh, well, you know that. And he said, didn't I see that on a French 
website like he, he said oh well we sold a few bits off you know and and I, and like like it, he said man you you know you you know my guitar's better than i do <laughs> from from never having met them talking because yeah. i'm a i'm a i have a, a real passion for vintage instruments it's been my as i said it's been my career as well so i was talking to him about all this stuff and and, and he remembered down the line because i mean i never later that year i got to see him play an outside show in london he'll they were playing on the same bill as springsteen in the olympic stadium park thing and um and he waved at me at the end of the game <laughs> i mean you know rich right he's not much one for waving. no no yeah he's you know especially when he stood next to his brother he he's really just all about his own Yep, he's focusing on what he's doing and nothing yeah, else. You know, and he's not looking that way. <laughs> no, no. But he waved, he's, you know. So anyway, it came to pass. That was the summer of 2013. And that was kind of the end of it, really. But the following summer, I went out and Rich was doing a UK solo tour. And he was in the UK for maybe one, I think it was maybe only one day in London. And then they were going to Amsterdam. And um, they're playing at the, it was a legendary venue. You might have heard of it. It was the, um, was it, what was it? Um, oh, can't, you, you will have heard of it, but I can't think of the name. In Amsterdam? No, in London. Oh, so they, London, okay. Right, right off Charing Cross Road in London. Uh, only a small venue, but, but very, very well known. It's gone now. That whole part of London's been expensively redeveloped. But so I walked in early for this show. I got the train up from from London, from Brighton and walked in. And then an old friend of mine, a, 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 a Swedish guy called Matthias, who was an ex-customer of mine in Brighton and who'd gone off to run a touring company, was stood on stage tuning Rich's gold top. <laughs> so I'm like, Matt, the fuck are you doing up there? <laughs> tuning what are you doing tuning richie's gold top he's like oh hey come on up man it was good to see you how have you been <laughs> and um he said oh yeah well he matthias had been driving for uh jay maskis for, okay for the, for jr yeah, yeah who's another guy that's legendarily difficult with his guitar tech you know he's <laughs> but matthias is a lovely guy he, he matthias now works for Doyle bramwell so uh but at that time he was doing richie's guitars and after the show, it's, it was, I don't know if you have this phenomenon in the US, probably not, but in the UK, a lot of venues from like 7.30 to 10.30, they're a music venue, and then they, they close at 10.30, and then they, well, they want to open again at 11 or 11.30 to be a nightclub. So you have these kind of what they call a club loadout, and they're horrible because the minute the band is off stage, the, the venue crew they just want you out so you've got right. no time so i after the show i'm you know it was an early finish they finished like maybe 9 45 or something early start early finish and i helped matthias i just helped come on i'll help you with that let's put the amps you know put the pedal board up give me that i'll wipe that stick it in the case backstage at the um at the venue i can't think the name but so i just helped him put it all away and off he went. And I thought nothing of it because it's I, for me it was great because I'm I'm like holding Rich's gold top that's on the cover of the Seeing Things 12 inch single. Mm -hmm. you know, Jeff Cease is holding it in that shot, and 
um and then other bits of you know stuff that i recognize another couple of guitars and then matthias sent me an email maybe like a month later saying hey mike here's the thing rich is coming back to do 10 shows he's asked me if i can road manage him because he's not bringing any american crew now i can't i can't tm in and do the guitars so do you want to come out and do the guitars um and I just sent him a, a four-letter email back, just said, oh, shit, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one a few minutes later, what are the dates? <laughs> <laughs> so I got to, yeah, I got to terrifying 10 days of, of, of teching for Rich. Yeah. The, the, the first, the, that was maybe late October 2014 into the middle of November. So the first show was in, in Islington, and they all, the, the guys kind of tumbled out. I've met Joe a little bit at that show in the summertime, so I had a couple of words with him. I didn't know them. And of course, then Rich Robinson just emerging yeah. from, from the back of some minivan, you know. Hey, Mike, how's it going? You know, I reckon, <laughs> and he remembered me. <laughs> so when Matthias had said, I know a guy from the UK who would be happy to come out, I trust him. Um, his name is Mike Ross, and Richard gone. I know that guy. He knows my guitars better than I do. Let's have him on board. So, so I did this run, and I mean, you know, Rich, right? He he has like twelve tunings or something. He, yeah. Well, yes. He, he has 15 quite fifteen guitars, twelve tunings. He brought three guitars. What? No way. He had one case, three guitars. So the his white SG, the yeah. gold. The, the Falcon or whatever, right? No, he didn't bring the Falcon. He brought a Telecaster. Oh, the white SG. I saw the white SG. Yeah, yeah, white yeah, Gibson yeah. SG. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So he brought that, which he uses a lot. We use a lot in the later days of the Crows. Um, and then a Telecaster, and then and then this the gold the gold top, the one that was damaged in the flood. Yeah, that has the uh, piece of the the cap off or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, he had yeah. it been all refinished and and but he they had it. Aged. Yeah. 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 So he brought those three guitars, and I've got, uh, they're not here, unfortunately, but I have in the house, I, I kept the set lists from every show because they have the guitar notes in. Was in that the, the Cecil Sight tour? Which tour was that? I can't remember, given that time. He's had a couple solo albums. It was the Ceaseless Sight tour, Okay, yeah. okay. It was, it, was, I, I, it was the one... Right before the Magpie, really, right, got formed. And... Yeah, well, it was, it was it, it, because the... the Yes, exactly. So it was yeah. the same band. It's the okay. same band. Well, certainly it was Joe and Matt. Mm-hmm. And he had um, uh, Ted so Joe Pe- Magistro, Matt Slocum. Yeah. Ted Pecchio playing the bass on that tour, um, who plays with Doyle. Uh, oh, no kidding. Uh, okay. Yeah. And he'd been playing with Doyle, and then he was out <laughs> on the road with, uh, with Rich. And they didn't, they, when they'd been in the summer, they had uh, they had a second guitar player and maybe maybe they had a guitar no the keyboards must have yeah the keyboards were there but when he came back in the winter tour he didn't bring the other guitar player um, it was just Rich doing the guitars and quite unusual because normally he would have the he'd had the second play, guitarist with him but that tour was was really special sounding because there was only the one guitar all night. You know, quite often I find if you go and see the Crows or you go and see Rich Solo with another player, 
it, it doesn't always come across that well. I don't know whether the Sandman doesn't know what to do with it, you know, but because well, it's guitar change every song with a different tuning. Yeah, but I think it's more just about where to sit in because the you know the, so he tends to be a bit down and then the, the guitar might be a bit higher or whatever. But with this with this band with Matt who's just a phenomenal musician playing playing off of Rich all night, it was every night was just a you know it was an education in how to have a four-piece band it was fascinating um but yeah he you know terrifying and i'll tell you so um he you know like his tunings i can see you you understand your guitar so he has an sg with a maestro uh and he have that in c tuning for something like um i don't know well whatever c tuning so it's quite a low tuning mm-hmm and then he'd hand you that back, and then I've got to give him like a Telecaster in G, which is fairly straightforward. The next song, he wants that SG back again, but he wants it in like F, which is quite far away from yeah. C. <laughs> and it's winter in the UK, and venues aren't very well heated. So, like, you basically, like, I have to wear the guitar. I was going to so say, yeah, the tuning stability has got to be awful yeah. when you're going to such extremes, plus the, the temperature on the wood. Yeah, just basically go like this the whole time because if you choose it, put it down, yeah, it goes, it'll it drop. Yeah, it up, he starts playing it and it goes, it goes out. Yeah, so holding these things, cradling them like babies, and frantically tuning. And then I remember particularly, I'd handed him it the SG in F for the song I remember, mm-hmm. and, and I hand it over, and I'm. And it's like, I don't think I'd ever tuned a guitar to open F before, you know? I mean, I, I, I can tune guitars, don't get me wrong. But, but I, and, and, and like, and he just ripped into it. I'm like, God, that was all on me. <laughs> <laughs> that was all on me, you know, if I made a mistake. And so I got that back and then the little guitar went on and then the notes uh such and such a song open e and i read it as open e flat Ooh. which the, the everything down a semitone so yeah, everything's, yeah. everything's a semitone flat so i handed it to rich in open e flat he's expecting an e he didn't even like he's nothing changed no kidding he just he just kind of got it and he played it and then he went over and spoke to to ted you know like the yeah, applause yeah, going. It's, yeah. it's no big thing gets the guitar like that goes over talks to ted comes back talks to like matt and plays a song <laughs> i'm oblivious thinking i've done it again <laughs> all's good here you know i'm tuning tuning the telly to whatever and then he comes back he hands me the guitar and i'm handing it he goes and as it leaned across he's like that guitar was in e flat <laughs> <laughs> And that's all he said, you know. I'm, oh shit! I'm almost like flushed and sweaty, and, and and he's just laughed about it, you know. But um, it was fantastic. There was one time I handed him a guitar, and as it was coming, you know, you have these guitar boats. Yeah, and yeah. I, it was a. We borrowed another two or three guitars. Actually, the next day, I got Frank. I was on the phone to Fender in the UK send me a strat and a telly and we borrowed a 335 of somebody else so i spread the load a little bit so this one show in wolverhampton i tuned a 335 and i think i must have caught it as it was coming up out of the rack oh. he tuned it 
so I handed him it, and um, and he's it's fine for like till the chorus, and then it's just yeah. really wrong, really flat, and and I wasn't really ready with a replacement, and he he was quite angry, you know, and it wasn't a great night, it wasn't a great crowd that night, and and I got I thought he's just going to kick my kick my tour or something, you know, but but he's he's cool, he, he he's a nice guy, he's very reserved. Yeah. It was so strange because because it was just a small tour. There was the four of them in the band. There was myself, Matthias, a guy called Dave O'Grady, who's an artist who Chris uh, Rich has produced, uh, and a and a guy filming, and that was it. So we're all on the same nightliner, on the same bus, and the buses in the UK are like half the size of the American tour buses. The European ones are much smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so smaller roads. Yeah. My bunk is like the other side of the aisle from Rich's. It was so weird having that experience, you know. But it was that more than anything that I went out for dinner one night. We were in Leeds and Rich and most of the band had gone to York, to the York Minister Cathedral. And Joe and I hung out. We went for a walk around Leeds. And um, and then we went and had some something to eat. And we were chatting and... I I wasn't I'd released that Spindrift album, but it hadn't done anything because it was just like four of my friends had bought it on iTunes. That was it. It was uh, I'd done nothing else and hanging out with Joe and and talking to him and he's like, well, you know, this is it. This is what you do. You know, if you if you are a songwriter, then you write songs, and if you're a musician, then you play shows. And and really, you know, he was using the the example of Rich, who, you know, the, the shows he was playing were like two fifty, three hundred cap shows maximum. They weren't big shows. The London one was a big show. They were mostly less than that. He was out with his solo band on a small nightline. I'm sure he didn't really particularly want to be sharing his sleeping sleeping accommodation with some fucking English guy that he never <laughs> met. You know, but he was or staring at him as a shows. Yeah, you know. So he was, um, but he was he was good with it, you know. He was boundaried and sometimes a little standoffish, but sometimes really warm and really open, you know. But um, talking to to Joe and he's like, well, this, if this is what you want, then this is how you do it. And you could, you, you know, I learned then that, you know, be it a theatre or a bar or a stadium or a four star hotel or a shitty German nightliner where the stereo didn't work properly and the carpet was coming up or, you know, whatever, that that's, that's the life. So it was, it was really a transformative experience from that perspective. I came home and, you know, and kind of set to work thinking, well, you know, I've seen one of my favorite musicians, one of my, you know, teenage inspirations, just go, their whole thing is it's all about the show. They might, they would they would appreciate a nice coffee. They, they you know, they, they, but basically it was, tr- it was travel, show, sleep, eat, sleep, you know, travel, show, eat, sleep. That was, that was the, that was the thing, you know. And um, so it's a really good work ethic to kind of take on. And of course, but then the music, as I said, was, was fantastic. Hearing Rich free of another guitar player really, you know we mentioned by your side before with the um because that's because he plays all the guitar yeah all the, and bass right yeah 
yeah um and that and and it doesn't always shine to be fair sometimes it's a bit like that you're waiting for the solo what he's played is great but it's not in Sindri, like mark or mm-hmm. something um but what he was doing with it is because it was the material from the through a crooked sun album is actually my preferred material ceaseless side's great yeah but it, but the kind of honesty of the through a crooked sun the integrity that comes out of those songs i uh were the ones they were the ones i was most enjoying hearing out on the road and what he's playing on the guitars on those songs is more like dave gilmore there's a lot of delay work Mm -hmm. um you know and and kind of textural rather than i'm you know rich robinson black crows holding down the engine room with steve kind of thing he was a lot more uh open so yeah, it was yeah it was great good times you know and we stayed in touch he came back to do some solo stuff i don't think he came back with the band pre magpie but when it was announced that mark was going to be doing the woodstock shows because he'd made the one record the woodstock sessions mm-hmm. with with his solo band yep they were going back to make another one and somehow somebody decided to he invited or somebody suggested or whatever that they invite um ed down and mark across and make a make a thing you know and then it then all kinds of shit got bolted on three backing singers came in and then the guy that plays the vibes came in and it was a you know it was a big deal but when they announced that mark was on it because they didn't announce that ed was on it i knew but it wasn't public knowledge because i knew they'd asked him but it was till the last minute he wasn't sure if he was going to turn up because he was quite fragile mm-hmm. but as soon as they announced mark i i i, I have like, had like an intermittent email exchange with rich we would talk about he, he would ask me about a pedal that he uh, once or twice and you know we, we had a little chat going but when they announced that mark was doing the show i emailed him i said look man is there any chance i can get a can come to one of these shows you know um and he just emailed back he said i've comped you for both shows all three all right nice nice so i still had to buy a ticket to yeah yeah a ticket and hotel yeah yeah but so i flew from from here and i hired a car and then my friend scott who makes those bmf pedals that we were talking about who makes mark's pedals he there wasn't there wasn't the signature model pedal at that time but he mark was using his fuzz and trouble mm-hmm. boost wah. so scott flew out from california we met at newark airport and flew up and drove up to woodstock together and we uh shared the accommodation and stuff and we spent these three days driving to and from we were in hunter and then they were in well they were in woodstock they were just on the outskirts of the town right 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 there in a house that used to belong to uh rick danko was the oh from the band yeah yeah so it wasn't they weren't recording at um at levon's place Mm -hmm. um they were in this other studio applehead studios and uh yeah so we like hung out for three days and a little bit standoffish when i got there i thought you know how am i you know i don't really know where to fit in here you know 
Like, am I in the crew or am I just here as a guest? And and then that photograph that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So we, I, I very respectfully kind of hung back in the crowd and and uh, we watched the first set. And then he had a break and we were outside and then he just came straight out. Hey, Mike, how's it going? You know, <laughs> I, what, what are you doing out here? Come on back, you know. And yeah. so I got to like reacquaint myself with the the band and and um had and to meet ed, I to ed. Meet, yeah well yeah oh because mark's flight was delayed he didn't make the first session he he was there on monday okay so it was a friday saturday sunday they did two sessions so like an afternoon and an evening each day so mark didn't cut didn't make it till maybe like five five o'clock on the friday because he'd had a a disaster with flights so but yeah but ed was there and i mean you know ed was he you know he's he's fragile guy sensitive guy by that time and and i so he was sitting talking to matt the the matt slocum and um and i went up and hey matt how's it going oh you know matt and i are really good friends we were connected and Ed's looking at me because I sat down next to Ed. Ed's looking at me. He's like, Who "The fuck are you?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that Ed, crazy Ed look. You know. So, um, so as an icebreaker, um, I have a, I have a Wurlitzer piano here. Oh, you know, underneath that shout, it gets dusty. Yeah. Um, so at that time, the the case lid had distorted somewhat plastic is old you know it, it re respond reacts so i had taken it all to pieces and built a wooden frame and put the top of this thing in the frame and then used a, a heat gun to heat the frame up to to fix it and and while i was doing that my wife at that time my wife's kids they had some rabbits in the garden and i had this really strange photograph of this well it's a frame looks like it's been buried in the grass with like rabbits jumping on it <laughs> i thought when ed's really given and i was matt had seen the picture on facebook so i'm showing i suddenly find myself showing crazy ed who's you know his grip on reality was somewhat tenuous from time to time showing him pictures of of like rabbits jumping out of a hollow world it's a sitting in woodstock you know it was a it was a strange strange experience but that was that was a good weekend, and then out of that came the Magpie Salute. Obviously, John wasn't there, but they I believe they overdubbed some vocals, and and then the Magpie thing happened. You know, awesome. Um, how do you think, or did this? Did did working with Rich influence you? Because I was like you said, you had already had kind of the Spindrift album out, but. You know, you had uh, Jenny's Place 2018 and Clovis Lemon Part 1 and Part 2. Did did working with him influence any of those those other albums? So that was 16. So okay. I, I went there not long because Je the, Jenny's Place, the original release of that was 2016. But it was but okay. I didn't re release it. I just made so 18. Yeah, your site says 2018 when I'm looking at your discography. Well, that's been, yeah, it was reissued at that time because it was never really issued properly in 16. So I kind of had a bit of a thing going, but I wasn't very anywhere, anywhere with it. So 
I mean, I don't think my music sounds much like Rich Robinson. I think there's, you get the odd song, but honestly, and I say this with my hand on my heart, I, I love the, the, the Crows. And and but and I don't but I don't think I really sound like them. No, no, you don't. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't have that you know, whatever if somebody every every now and again somebody sends me a song by a band and they'll say, You like this, it sounds like the Black Crows. And when I listen to it, it sounds like the London choir boys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's all round but and it sounds like or the faces, you know, yeah. or something like that. Whereas the crows that I like is like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, or, um, oh, well, wiser time. I don't, you know, and, and nobody really touches that. It comes from a place that only the black crows know how to get into, uh, you know, and, and, and I've, you know, I've seen Rich play with Brackbury Smoke playing wiser time and it's all very well and good, but it doesn't sound like the crows. Right. And, right. And, and I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put my, star on the table and say that no band without steve gorman in it is going to sound like the black crows right right right, right on but i had tickets i have tickets to see the black crows you know <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> my i, I in, in to be to fair in fairness to myself though my wife bought them. Uh, i would not have bought them i'm i was really? yeah i you know I wish they'd play as Brothers of a Feather or the Brothers or whatever they did and do Black Crow stuff, but call it like whatever they want, not the Black Crows. Yeah. Well, but it's it's money, isn't it? You know, it's I get. Money. Well, yeah, the so, name sells. So I was I was in I was backstage in venues. I was backstage in Leeds with Rich Robinson the day that Steve Gorman broke on his radio show that what had happened. I already knew because it, because it had been said, but that yeah. was. That was when that happened. So Rich was Crazy. there and, and he'd um, that was one of the rare times when he became very, uh, very descriptive about his experience in the Crows. And he was basically talking about how difficult it is to be in a band with your brother. You know? And um, and all of this stuff came out. But anyway, to kind of to answer your question. There's a thing that the Black Crows have, which is comes from the rhythm section, I think, rather than the rather than the harmony between them because those guys just don't like each other, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just don't like each other. The rich just doesn't like Chris and Chris just doesn't like rich. And that, and that's, and, and they both know that really. And, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't think they ever have. And, and why pretend that now it's okay. You know, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe you're not going to print that. Maybe you're not going to show that bit of the podcast, but, but, um, <laughs> You're not so, saying anything that's not known. From yeah, from that period, sitting in that room with Rich Sin, that mother, you know, and, and he wouldn't believe. And then I got this email from his fucking wife, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's got Chris's fucking name on the bottom of it. But he didn't write that. I know my brother. I've known him all of his, you know, all my life, and he didn't write that fucking email. <laughs> so all that, all that kind of stuff going on. Um, but you know, on the day that it was announced, I was talking to to you know some some people who will remain nameless in case you do put this up and somebody hears it. Uh, I said, you know, that like it's going to be no more than four years because that's when all the money's going to run out because they just don't they just don't have enough money to to not be in the Black Crows, you know. Not yeah. and I and I know that because 
everybody that had i mean look bob dylan just sold his song catalog yeah yeah so did neil young so you, you, that's because there's no money in copyright now the only money that there is in copyright is in placing those titles on in adverts on video games on you know uh, on netflix having somebody do a biopic and actually use the real music that kind of thing that's where the money is now there is no money in a physical back catalog yeah there's only money in merch and and ticket sales from big shows mm-hmm. so yep. live nation brings the black crows so it can't be birds of a feather because it has to be the black crows the only way the black crows can do it is if they have complete control and they have three or four guys who will just play great who will who won't disagree steve i love him he's very outspoken he, he doesn't always do himself in any favors in grace <laughs> with other members of the human race um so why should he? Because he's, you know, they're, they're those uncompromising guys. But it, but they're not that band now. They're just they're just guys that need to make a living into their retirement. Yeah. Same same as same as any of us really. So can't blame him for doing it. But nope. you know, in terms of my relationship with Rich, the it was that was okay in Woodstock. He actually hugged me. I was very surprised, you know, um, as I was leaving. But then. It kind of it didn't sour. Like I don't think anything happened to it, but I think he just moved into a different space. You know, the time I was working with him, he didn't really have like a a management team as such. Mm-hmm. So with the Magpie Salute, there was there was a management team. I don't think they're around now, and 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 I don't think they were particularly uh, effective at, 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 at managing that very well. No um uh because they were from outside of the industry and the, and and it didn't it didn't really happen but then so then like some levels of the last time i sent rich an email i got an email from somebody else saying oh i got your email i folded it to rich um uh you know if he wants to get back to you i'll let you know and then i never heard anything and then the next time i saw rich I said oh did you get that email i sent you he said no man and i said Oh, so if I'd have known you were comp, you know, so they, so he, some yeah. connection got broken. But then at the end of the Magpies, you know, nobody told them. Rich didn't tell them. Right. You know, it, it just, it, there was that video in Nashville, wasn't there? They were out for dinner and somebody, and a fan saw them and that went mm-hmm. up. The announcement went up. And then um, Rich's email address just stopped accepting replies. So. Yeesh, ouch. But it, then, you know, just around that time, the world completely changed. <laughs> yep, yeah. So, so yeah. everybody suddenly had to just retreat to their basements, cellars, studios, gardens, whatever, for, for months in the lockdown. So, so much has changed from now to then. But, yeah, you know, I I, I was never into that band because they were nice people. And right. Was, you yeah. Know. You separate the art from the artists and a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that, I guess in that generation that it worked for them because they were you know they 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 had Phil managing them and they had lots of money that they were never expecting to pay back and it was just going to be forever talk about copyright we're always going to be okay because there's always going to be money coming in um, th- nowadays emerging artists what I call or gets called in the UK grassroots artists, DIY artists, they have a much more intimate and kind of 
strong connection to each and every fan. Yeah. Because that's how that that's how we make our living. Yeah. You know, you can have a hundred thousand fans that stream you once a week and that's doesn't anything. You can have a thousand fans that that spend a hundred pounds a year with you, hundred dollars a year with you, and that's a hundred thousand dollar business turnover, you know. So yeah. so it's that that's that's the way that it is now. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, you know, Brian started this podcast, other than he really enjoys the music of blues and southern rock, is there is not a great platform to get artists like yourself and other people out um, to hear and to spread the word. Like, we've heard about so many good bands and talked to so many good bands, and the same story as you. It's like, it's a small production. Uh, everybody helps each other out, different bands. A lot of it's family or friends run. And they've got to support each other and have that good connection with the fans because that is the only way for them to keep going. There's no TV, no radio, nothing helping them out. When I talk to all these you know, young bands down in the South, and I'm glad you mentioned that early on in our conversation about that music coming from that area. It's all a lot of camaraderie and support. It's not, you know, they're all going to each other's shows. They're all kind of stay in touch in some sort of way through you know, Facebook or whatever. So that's really cool. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you, we wanted to ask you about RHR and how that came together because mm-hmm. all three of you guys, Troy Redfern and Jack J. Hutchinson, yourself, all like just great guitar players of the genre. So it'd be really interesting to hear about how that, how that all came together. Yeah, well, let me think. So how did that come about? So I was booked originally uh, maybe 20 maybe 2015 to play um there's a like i live in brighton so i'm on the south coast directly underneath london maybe 35 miles south of london give or take so there's there's a place called tunbridge wells actually royal tunbridge wells uh in kent kind of over in the forest over there it's quite a well-to-do town quite genteel quite old school old world and i got a message there from a from a bar saying please, will you come and play on such and such a Sunday afternoon? Um, and we'll pay you. And it was a quite a lot of money, more than it should be for the, <laughs> for, for the kind of thing. I'm like, yeah, man, yeah, we're time. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so I get there and, and he'd be, they'd also booked Jack, Jack. And I'd never heard of him. I didn't know him. He booked Jack and Jack's friend, uh, T- Tom, who is from New Jersey, harmonica player. And they were playing before me. Yeah, so they had the stage set up and everything. And then Jack was playing for an hour and then I was playing for an hour or whatever, maybe a bit longer. And Jack was playing, uh, he has a song from his Boom Boom Brotherhood Brotherhood album called Too Much Too Soon or Too Much Too Young. And it sounds, it's in open G tuning and it's, it, Black Crow's esque, it's spaces esque, mm-hmm. and I bear in mind that even, but even as far back as then, I hadn't really know anybody that liked that music. You know, certainly no one really young. And any kind of his hair was like our hair wasn't long, long like it is now, but it was getting longer. And he, he was like dressed in sort of oasis going on, Black Crow's kind of clothes. <laughs> you know? So we we hit it off. We kept in touch. And then he he used to have a residency in a in a bar in Soho, the blue blues bar. I used to take my guitar up and sit in with him sometimes. And um, 
and then like a bit of a bit of getting up with each other's band but we weren't in a band together i played bass on a record that he, his first solo album he um but I, like i did it in my in my jogging pants in my kitchen of my old house <laughs> you know he sent me the files and i did it but um we we had never really talked about collaborating together troy i knew from i had been in this band for a short space of time with this guy roscoe levy we played a blues festival again over in kent and well we were we were short of material we didn't have a we didn't have enough original songs to play this show so um i only knew troy as being a guy that looked cool and had a nice looking guitar you know he's a moody looking guy i never really heard him play but i facebook messaged him you know you talk about people this scene in the uk with those guys and els bailey and tom kilner is another one and 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 anybody that kind of looks like we should know each other we just kind of get or i get in touch certainly so i invited troy to come and have a jam and um and he we he filled up that 20 minutes that we couldn't fill in this set you know so so it, later it came back a little bit later i was talking to a promoter of another blues festival the bigger blues festival trying to get a show like hustling him really and i said well look he he was running this thing where we we i wasn't big enough to get on this on the bill but he had these bars called the roadhouse stages so he'd have like a just a pub or a bar and he put three bands in there and then the other three bands in there and i was trying to persuade him i said look man why don't you book me and well you could book like jack's band and if you book troy's band then like call it a thing call it like i don't know space blues extravaganza or something and and then you're going to get all the people that like that kind of southern rock yeah thing. yeah coming to that one story well he didn't do it he 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 booked he booked some combination of us but i can't remember exactly what it was but he didn't book us all in on the same thing but but off the back of that we decided we would get together and we did a show in london with all three bands so we did 30 minutes set each that troy headlined i opened jack was in the middle and troy headlined but then somebody booked us for a for a show three or four hundred miles away from here and he booked us to take all three bands but it wasn't enough money so the original idea to collaborate came out of well why don't we just take one rhythm section we'll get them to learn all the material and we'll do like a review you know and we'll play our solo sets um but then from there i asked around and got a bit more interest i actually ended up booking a tour a uk tour without knowing what we were going to do and um and then it was around the time I was recording what is now Clovis 2. I had booked four days in a studio here in Brighton and I invited the guys down. I said, well, look, send me two songs each, original songs. And Darren, who's my full-time or my long, long-serving drummer, he's a fantastically quick study. He's got great feel. He understands. And so we were off on tours. We were in Spain, maybe, listening to these songs learned them in the van without playing them got back to the uk had a, like we sort of recorded half of them before they got here we played it then they came down played their parts we were just going to release like maybe an ep in support of this tour but it just snowballed so 
we didn't have a name. We had these shows, but we didn't know what we were going to call them. We were going to call them Space Blues Extravaganza. What songs are we going to play? Well, if we each pick two original songs and two covers and then do some jamming, then that'll be okay. And then it became this thing. And then we ended up with the Mahogany Drift album, which is that. It's two original songs each with the band. And then I recorded a solo song. Troy recorded a solo song. Jack resurrected something that wasn't used from his last solo album, a song called Holler. We stuck it all together. I kind of produced it, really. I'm the only guy that plays on every song. Mm. Every The other ones, Troy did some parts and then Jack played, you know, it was all kind of just who was around at the time. I think I'm the only, I'm, I'm certainly, the, the only song I don't play on is one of Troy's and he plays all, everything on that or something. So we ended up with Mahogany Drift and then we did that run of shows and it really, we had some good photographs taken. It was quite a, quite a cool image. We really looked like a good band. This mm-hmm. three long haired badasses. <laughs> Guitar singing badasses. Moody faces on. But I can't, I can't, I mean, Troy's really good at capturing that moody guitar player look. And Jack also, he has that, um, you know, he has that mean face, but I can never take him seriously because he he can never wait to get his boots off and get his trainers on and, you know, his, his jogging bottoms and sit and watch a bit of telly. <laughs> he always, he's always, he can't, he just can't wait. Oh, I'll get, it, get, it, get that over so we can have a brew and, and get watch a bit of telly. But um, so we did this short tour and then just a little bit more stuff. And, um, and, then, it, and then Jack left because he was busy with his solo band, so. It was kind of over in about 18 months, really. Oh, well, that's cool stuff, man. That's a really, I, I didn't realize that's how that album came together, where, you, where everybody kind of contributed to their own songs to it. That, that, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it more to pick up on that. That's, that's, that's a really interesting thing. Well, it was, it was yeah, it, you know, it came together great. And, and, I mean, worth mentioning here is that, you know, I've become more and more involved in the recording process of all of my stuff. I've always had a keen interest, but but where I'm at now with it, with the sort of production and editing and and doing some mixes myself, some bits of mixing. But really, there's a guy called Al Scott that that lives here in town, and he's produced all of my albums, and he produced uh, well. He's like the. I mean, I, the last couple I wrote that I produced it because I've got the concept, but but like it would be nothing <laughs> without Al Scott mixing and mastering because he's the guy that is the glue. Mm-hmm. He takes all of my stuff and like you know makes it a thing. So he did the Mahogany Drift album as well, and he's great. He's really pragmatic. He's a real quick worker. He's he's you know there's. The, it's no problem. Nothing's a problem for him. And he gets a really nice kind of contemporary sound. But yeah, if you listen out and also because my, my two songs, my two electric songs on Mahogany Drift are She Painted the Moon and uh, Ghost Hound Rider. And either one of them songs, you could almost drop it into any part of Clovis 2 and it would fit because all of the songs on Clovis 2 and those songs on on Mahogany Drift, they were recorded, some of them on the same day. And, mm. and it's only the addition of um, of Jack and, and Troy's yeah. parts. Troy doesn't play on Ghost Hand Rider. Um, 
that that kind of made it RHR. So the, it was at that point, me, as I said, I didn't really have a Southern rock audience that I knew of. I had a blues audience mm-hmm. and I had aspirations of being regarded as a songwriter because I put a lot of time into my lyrics and, and, and this, that and the other and arrangements rather than just be a vehicle for solos. Um, but watching the way that this short run of UK shows with RHR really picked up momentum and interest and, and sales, you know, the, the CDs were setting and it, the numbers were good. And then they're going, oh, oh, hang on a minute. So that means that, pe- like, well, I've been doing that since I was 16. <laughs> this is the stuff I've been doing since I came home from the Allman Brothers show and started, yeah. you know, started working on that. So it, it, it really, one, it, I took an immediate left turn and released an Americana album because I wanted to give RHR the room for that. It's like I don't suddenly want to release a solo album that sounds like RHR because I want RHR to be a thing. And then I want to exist around it. So that's another reason why Clovis One was the one I made in Nashville with the pedal steel and the fiddle and the three-part harmonies for us Nash. Nash. Because I wanted, I, I had expectations, I suppose, of, of RHR continuing to be the three of us working around our solo projects. And indeed, we did do another couple of runs and we did another album, although that album was, the Hotel Toledo album was recorded like as you listen to it that's how it sounded there was okay. we did there we, we 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 snipped a few boring bits out of the middle but it's all live all in the room all just gone on uh from from one to five and and it's in the order that it was recorded in as well so it's, huh. you know apart from the, the track seven is the reprise of something you know, it's the same thing in a different time signature but it was, it was a stream of consciousness recording that troy and i had uh, I, that it, we would been chatting about when we were in uh, we were in Denmark coming back from a German show. How about we did this? Yeah, okay. And then I made it happen. But Jack left before that album came out. Um, bit, I was a bit pointless, really. I don't know why he left. I think he had the hump because um, he, I said to him, "Why? What is the matter with you? Why are you leaving?" And he said, "I, I, I like to be in charge." <laughs> <laughs> I I, I honestly couldn't because we were getting booked for more money and bigger audiences together than he was getting solo. And and I told him that and it pissed him off. You know, he got, I I said, but this thing is more, is is more than any of our solo things. No, it isn't. I wouldn't agree with that. (laughs) So, so maybe maybe he was right. I don't know. It feels a little bit like Neil Young leaving Crosby, Stills, and Young. You know, it's like if you can do it by yourself, then why do you need to do it with those three? Right. Yeah, yeah. But Neil but, Young's solo career is a little different. Yeah, but but Jack, you know, he's, he's unlikely to watch this, but he, he does have he does have the odd delusion of grandeur. Bless him. But um, hopefully, none of his British fans are going to hear me say that. <laughs> um, but I mean, we've remained friends. It put quite a strain on the relationship because sure. it left me in, in in a little bit of a financial hole, which which because I fronted the money for for the whole, for the album Hotel Toledo. Although we we managed, you know, like yeah. we got out of that we that that band always made money, which is unusual. It always made some money, um, but it was for me. It was like I. 
I, I booked every show. I drove to loads of them. It was my van. I was booking the accommodation. It was my drummer. I had to make sure that everybody had all the stuff, you know, so I was doing all the work. And I was, actually, I was glad to because it was what was really good about, about RHR. And there is some video on YouTube. Um, it was absolutely arresting to watch. I didn't know. But I found it, I'm like, God, this is so easy. Because if you watch me play, I'm singing, I'm communicating, I'm like channeling, I'm tap dancing, two paddle boards, <laughs> I'm changing guitars like Rich Robinson does, and, and I'm and I'm making sure the bass player's keeping up, and I'm cueing the organ player for the stop because he's forgotten. And you know and I'm talking to the drummer about the tempo for an hour and a half. And then with RHR, it's like, oh, I've only got to do that every th every third song because we would we would always break it up. So we'd sing one each. And in fact, the album is if you listen to Mahogany Drift, it's like my song, Jack's song, Troy's song, my song, Jack's song, Troy's song. So we 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 there were three, three and three and then the instrumental um, because it was supposed to be very fair, like an even representation yeah. of our talent. But being part of the guitar front of that it wasn't you know it wasn't no it wasn't fleetwood mac it wasn't it wasn't the allman brothers it wasn't Fleet, you know it wasn't it never got anywhere being like as good as 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 that band but but it was it's really intense to watch like when i've watched stuff on youtube of just how much was going on and what you could focus in on mm -hmm. because the the three guitars somehow despite nobody really like planning it, it worked really well and and so i'm playing one thing and troy's a very different kind of player and jack's another very different kind of player but actually we you'd think we were quite similar until you hear us all in the same space and then you realize how well it fitted so i expected that to go on for years and years because i thought it was this, this is too good not to yeah. Pick it up every, you know, maybe once a year, do something or pick a bit of stuff up. So I was for a little while. I'm like, oh, maybe I won't bring Clovis two out because I think what I'll probably do is develop RHR and then continue down this kind of like checky shirt wearing the trucker stack, you know, like keep keep the sort of songwriting thing going over here. But then when RHR went up when jack left i mean troy and i still thought we, we we had lined another player up for the shows we had last year but nothing happened because everything got cancelled yeah i think it's kind of over as a as a thing people remember it fondly but i thought well you know i'm just gonna step into that gap i'm gonna bring this out and it's been it's been very well received rhr was a great kind of what do you call it like a gateway drug to my yeah. soul you know it's a little bit like somebody turns you onto some pot and then you're going to get something a bit harder well it's like i'm going to deploy rhr show you what i can do with my solo career and first and taste it, is free yeah exactly yeah exactly you know and, and, it, and it's easier because it was spread three ways but now all of us have benefited in our solo careers from that because it because it was it was there, but but yeah, you know, all the southern rock guys coming out woodwork. We we like that. We like that. Blackberry Smoke have been really good 
for that. Oh yeah, we love those guys. Yeah, it's it's never they've never connected with me on recordings, but I saw them at we have a festival near here called Rambling Man. It's Mm -hmm. the only festival that pretends to be anything like a southern rock festival, and and and, I mean they've got Europe, you know that the Swedish band they're headlining this year, so (laughs) they're hardly southern, (laughs) but um but they like greg played that show uh government mule played mm-hmm. it steve earl played it and, and and blackberry smoke played it and live i was i was you know it was it was a good sort of 45 percent of like the high as the moon tour you know i'm like yeah. i'm i'm not quite halfway there but but that's a long way there compared to more or less any other band I've ever seen. Yeah, they're a great live they, show. One of the best yeah. live performers now, right now. Yeah, yeah. And just the whole, you know, the, the, the Charlie's a, is a is a really great performer. You know, definitely. So that's been good in in kind of illustrating to people what Southern Rock is. But but for well, it, because it's what it is to them. But but honestly, like my Southern Rock isn't that twangy. I get it. I know where they're coming yeah. from. I see where they're taking the commercial Nashville thing and and they're mixing it up with the crows and they're mixing it up with with uh, Leonard Skinner and the almonds and, and whatever it happens to be. And and I know and I get it. Um, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't do it myself if 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 if, if that's how things had evolved. But I'm I'm coming at it blues coming into that yeah. rather rather than so much country coming in you've got a lot more blues and soul americana with your rock versus country with your rock for sure yeah definitely that so soul and 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 i, and I suspect it's all either memphis or muscle shows you know like yeah. if you take it i was thinking i was listening what was i listening to i was listening to derek and the dominoes i was listening in fact i wasn't even listening to them i was thinking about Derek and the Dominoes, and and I was thinking from there you've got Jim Gordon and Carl Radel, uh, and and um, your man on the on the organ. What's his name? Um, mm, oh, I can't remember that. Got two of his solo albums. Not one would right. No, the, the American guy. So they they were they were Joe, they were in Joe Cocker's band, but they were with Delaney and Bonnie. That's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I can't think. Uh, uh, anyway, was it Whitlock. Um, Bobby Whitlock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bobby Whitlock. So, so Bobby Whitlock, Carl Radle, Jim Gordon, Jim Keltner, um, and then um, who's the other fantastic? Um, well, anyway, all of the, those Muscle Shoals guys, you know, and then before that, the Swampers, obviously, the backing stuff, and even Jimmy Reed. You know, like, uh, sorry, Jerry Reed, not Jimmy Reed, Jerry Reed. So that on Clovis 2, there's an, in, the other instrumental on that record is called Tell Jerry. And it's and it's Jerry Reed. I'm trying to tell it. I'm trying to tell Jerry that it's like it's it was you, <laughs> you know, from from my experience of Smokey and the Bandit. And and, you know, as a child of the 80s in the UK, there's nothing further away than than the snowman driving his truck uh, <laughs> you know, being chased by that 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 was that and colt sievers you know that, that yeah cool oh the fall guy man <laughs> i love that show but think about that music yeah 
you know, and and it's well, hell, Lee Majors wrote and performed the theme song to the Fall Guy. Uh, now I'm going to have that theme song stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah. the one of the greatest the theme songs ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, the, but but it's it's Jerry Reed, and Jerry Reed is like the personification of swamp crazy, isn't it? Yeah. You know. His whole thing, eastbound and downward. But if you go into, I mean, he was a phenomenal guitar player. He did fantastic guitar play. All that harmony stuff he's done, like he done it. Himself. You know, that's not that's not Nashville session cats. That that's right. him somewhere in Alabama. You know, Fame Studios or Muscle Shoals or whatever it was, uh, Jacksonville Highway, that the whatever they call that studio. Um, and it's it's an Alabama thing. That you know that kind of and that so you think about the think about the impact of that expanding waves like a tsunami traveling through 60s rock from and the band are, are attached to that as well. So one minute it's all Clapton with his pink boots on, face down at the floor, 25 minute solos off his not on acid, and the next minute it's Delaney and Bonnie with his fantastic supercharged soul with two drummers and yeah. Uh, uh, Leon Russell on guitar and, and Joe Cocker and the Space Choir and all this kind of stuff. It just transports the music, and and then the impact. So the impact that had on on the on British rock, and then because the, that curve always kind of falls back into American rock. Suddenly, you know that that sort of jam based stuff also and and psychedelic rock just seemed a bit silly and and childish, you know. And, you, and then, you, then you've got Zappa taking care of business with these compositions, and then this soul thing comes out, and it, and it all came out of it came out of them road bands in in, in Alabama and and maybe as far up as Memphis. So, I've always carried that, even though I didn't know that for a very long time. I just knew that I was always the happiest when Otis was on because it was nearly always Al Jackson on the drums, boom, ta, boom, boom, ta, and it's just, oh, I'm there, you know. There's a Jerry Reed uh, from YouTube. You can see Jerry Reed playing with BB King. It's pretty incredible. I've not seen that one. I've I've I have watched quite a lot of guitar play. He was very unusual in that because he's a country picker, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. and he would play Gibson guitars. And and I think he was like maybe as a Gibson endorsee, you know. So you see him because he had a TV show, didn't he, in the seventies? He had his own show. Yeah, and, I don't know about that. Yeah, there are episodes of it on on YouTube. The Jerry Reed. Show. You know, it'd be like the Johnny Cash show or yeah, or, like a variety show or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. But he'd have um, he has some great musicians on, but most most of those guys are play Fenders, you know, they're country artists. But, mm-hmm. but he play Gibson guitars, but he doesn't sound like Gibson guitars. They're really thin and bright and plunky. But but that you know that um, I can't think of, of a particular song to to describe to you, but. All that this like crazy ass swamp beat, that it's just like it's like Jamo playing the drums. Yeah, but you apply that to two Les Pauls and an organ, and uh, you know forty five minute guitar solos. <laughs> but it's but it's come out of Muscle Field, man. Love it. Well, Mike, what can you tell us? Like, where where do we go to find to listen to your music, to find your stuff, to to know all about you? Well, uh, my website is a good place to start, which is mikerossmusic.co.uk. Um, I I guess on socials, I'm most active on Facebook. 
Okay. So um, that would be my band pages forward slash the, the Mike Ross band. Um, I have a fan group on Facebook, uh, which is called the Event Horizon. So in there is where I put little bits of video and, uh, you know, Facebook's weird now. Like you have to spend 10 bucks to get anybody to see a post. Oh, Everybody, yeah, to boost it or whatever. Yeah. yeah, you just don't see it anymore. So but the f- groups are taking over, basically. So what it yeah. means is that all the good stuff goes on behind closed doors now. So find my Facebook group if you're interested. Come and hang out. Um, that Those are the places. But all of my records are on the streamers. So you'll find me on Spotify and, and you'll find me on iTunes. And But if you want, you know, I, I'm fine with streamers. I, I get a lot of artists. I, I hear people like Spotify get a lot of flack from from artists. And, well, yeah, maybe maybe that's right. Maybe they should. I think the, the blame is further up the chain, personally. I think it comes... You know, the, the the unfairness in royalties comes from the distribution, the collection people and mm-hmm. from the labels. Spotify are just playing a game. But um, so you can you. But if you like, I would ask and I would say this would be the same for any artist. If you like my stuff and you listen to it on Spotify, do consider buying a physical copy from yeah. my website, because if you buy a physical copy from my website for 15 bucks, like I get to keep. 12 of those and if you buy a digital copy from itunes for 10 bucks i get to keep about four so yeah yeah like it's cool you can buy if you're listening i'm happy if you if 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 you want to go that next stage further then let me sell your t-shirt you know or 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 a a, a cap or something you know and i ship Mm -hmm. worldwide and you do have a really good web page so for everybody who's listening out here go to um mikerossmusic.co.uk it's great you have one thing that's really cool on there that i really liked is a mini biography on youtube it's a a movie kind of about your life it tells a lot of different things that you've gone through i thought that was a really great great way to have people introduce introduce yourself you've got a lot of media a lot of interactive things it's a really good website and that's really how i learned the most about you prior to get you on this podcast to talk oh that's good feedback because i never really know i mean looks great Thank you. I mean, my my contemporaries and I, we, we often call it pissing in the wind. So it's, <laughs> I have no idea what you guys could know. Like I spend lockdown for me is, has been and, and I continue. I mean, we're still in a lockdown. We kind of lifted the curtains for a little while. Now we disappeared back under. <laughs> but um, it's been me sitting in here in front of this computer making video. So you talk about I made a I made a. A documentary mini documentary yeah. series uh and i ran that through my event horizon page and i ran them as one minute videos and ran it for two weeks because we have we all have the collective attention of a goldfish now so <laughs> so i put them all out there for a minute a day and then at the end i released the, the 15 minute version and yeah i guess unlike a lot of well actually like quite a lot of artists as we've discussed, and it's been brilliant, by the way, thank you for this in-depth discussion. I very rarely get the chance to air all of the old stuff um, because it, we don't usually have the time. But I feel like because I've been at it for so long and because my style of music has been, it's kind of been broadly the same, you know, we talk about, so we talked about Jack. And if you listen to him three albums back, 
kind of sounds like Oasis, you know, and he even says it. I sent yeah. him a track recently that there was something that was old and mine. And he goes, God, is that is that you singing then? Because you kind of sound like you do now. When I was 19, I sounded like, you know, Liam Gallagher or I was trying to be Liam Gallagher. Yeah. So for me, it's been like a lifelong commitment since that first note of um don't want you know as soon as it dropped from the instrumental the almonds and it went into not my cross to bear at that show in manchester in 1991 i'm like god this is the rest of my life now uh, <laughs> and you stuck to it yeah well i've tried to i've i've tried to you know or i've certainly always wanted to whether or not i was able to 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 express it at the time but i found you know when <laughs> when i was maybe 16 the rolling stones played a show in, in in newcastle and i didn't go because this was 1990 uh, i didn't go because they were too old so, <laughs> 19 30 years later i'm not gonna go and see mick jagger he's 40 D- disgusting who would be 40 yeah. or who would be so, 45 years old yeah, well i'm yeah, like i'm 47 this year you know so i'm feeling it um but I went to see the Stones for, you know, to, to, to see how at that time rock and roll would never die. Pete Townsend, you know, was, wasn't yeah. playing the guitar anymore and all this kind of stuff. And it went and it did feel a bit, you know, like that. But but the, the world has changed in, in all, so many ways. And and I went to see Mick and the, and the Stones in 2013. But he's like 17 or something. <laughs> uh, and it's unbelievable. He's just fantastic. Yeah. So for me as an artist, I guess it's not justifying why I'm still at it because, but I can genuinely say that uh, at no point in my career has my music been as good as it is right now. And yeah. something we haven't talked about, and I know it's probably got a lot for you to edit, but just something I wanted to mention and I've alluded to it a little bit. I've actually got an active crowdfunder thing going at the moment. I, my the first band where I fronted and sang all of the songs and wrote all of the material was a band called Taller Than, and it was a three-piece band. My brother played the bass, and we had a drummer. And in the winter of nineteen, and it was a difficult band to be in. It was it was a we really modelled ourselves on the Who in nineteen seventy one, which is a really exhausting time. <laughs> so live at Leeds was our benchmark. And, and so everything is that it's so full on. My brother and I have a very fractious relationship um, uh, that's informed some of my understanding of the Robinson brothers, for example, mm-hmm. and how difficult it is to be in a band with your brother. Well, so anyway, long story short, we recorded an album. We had a management contract in the late 90s. They put us in the studio, uh, but the management contract fell apart. These guys turned out to be a waste of time. But I had we came out of the studio with these tapes. We had a rough mix and then it never got finished. So we had these rough mixes. They've been hanging around all this time and they were available on my band campaign for a while for completists. But one of the things that's gone on in lockdown is I, I went up to my, my parents' house and dug these tapes out of the loft. And I'd given up I, like into as far ago as like 2002. I'd given up on these albums. I thought, well, nobody's ever, I'm never going to do anything with these. It's just over. You know, I'm writing better songs now. I'm in a different place, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I, I sent them off to a friend who uh, who 
restore the tapes. There's a process you need to do. And I got the audio and we are and I've started a crowdfunder project to to fund the release of an album that is laying kind of buried. And we released the first single from it yesterday. So something that I recorded in the winter of 1998 came out as a single yesterday. I just wow. While I've been talking to you, I, I don't know if you've seen me a few times being a bit distracted. I yeah. must have had a dozen emails from my from the the lady that helps me out with radio play going, you've just had a play, you've just had a play, you've just oh, had nice. a, just had a wow. play. Um, so that, that people are reacting to this song that I recorded like half my life ago. <laughs> and and um and it and it's and it's like riffy southern rock <laughs> so the whole both ends of my kind of life of music have, have been bookended by that you know we put That's that cool. up on the on the facebook page i put i just put yep. that up the crowdfund thing that you had sent me on the oh, messenger okay. so you got that. great yeah thank you so much mike for being on of course the last couple of records are the clovis limit part one and two jenny's place before then you can listen to mahogany drift and hotel toledo uh records from from RHR. Also, before we let you go, we heard about you from Andy Southern Rose from Southern Brotherhood, Andy yep. and Jeff. So that's that's they're the guys that that pointed the direction towards you and let us know about you. So that was We're very super cool. happy by that. Like I yeah. love this last album's great. Well, Jeff, um, I met Jeff because he's a huge Crows fan, right? So he was, right, yeah, he was turning up at every Rich Robinson solo show. That's and and I don't I don't even think he I think he just comes in now. They're like, oh hey Jeff, you know, <laughs> like nobody everybody knows who he is. He does he's not buying tickets or anything. They just hey come on in Jeff, you know. And uh, I got friendly with him then and was giving him like strings and set lists and things like that. And, and then it's but it's fairly recently we connected on social media and he said he was going to hook me up with you guys. So it's I've really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, really do I get to talk about this stuff? So. <laughs> and, you know, we're a podcast. We have no obligations or time restrictions. So this is open form. I love it. Yeah. OK, thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. We hope to talk to you again in the future. I hope to yeah. see you live one day when the world opens back up again. Yeah, well, I, I'm just about. Actually, have you got the? I'll say, I can drop you something in the messenger. There's a couple of things like hidden in YouTube that that you might you might enjoy watching. So, all right, I'll thank you. you so much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Take care, guys. Well, you guys just heard it, and thanks to Mike Ross for coming onto the podcast and talking to us. Uh, just like so many of our other guests, like so enjoyable. Such a humble guy, such a great guy to talk to, very friendly, very, you know, I, once again, you know, when I'm in, when we are in these chats with people, it's like therapy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I'm almost like in another world talking to these musicians, especially across the pond and, you know, and all his, uh, you know, talking about, you know, like we said before, teching for Rich and and just kind of having that connection with those guys and seeing that first you know, magpie show have very wonderful yeah yeah what uh what else do you want to add to that jason no i mean so mike was great he's one of my, you know he's one of those good guests where that we've had recently like an andy aldor scotty brasher where you just sort of point them in a direction and they go and they have good good stories good information and they kind of build so for me, a lot of the questions I wanted to ask him, he hit without me even bringing them up. It was really good, entertaining guy, open, friendly, charismatic. Like it was just, it was a great conversation and just super cool dude. 
And, you know, I, I don't know if I want to look at it as coincidental. I think it's kind of a magic thing, like where, who did we talk to for our last episode? Andy Eldort. We talked to Mike Ross, and they were both at the first Magpie show. You know, that's right. They were. That's that's weird. What? That's a coincidence, not planned. Yeah. I'm going to have to message both those guys and say, hey, do you guys know each other per chance? <laughs> so, so I was texting with Andy yesterday and said, are you aware of my, He didn't know because, you know, Mike is very – you know, really more in the UK and stuff and no, but I sent him some stuff and he dug and he's like, man, I could hear the Peter green influence. And I'm like, damn. I'm like, when we were talking to Mike, he brought up Peter green. Like, so yeah. when you're a good musician, historian, you can pick up on those things. And, and, and Andy picked it up too. And yeah. And those guys are just like in the vibe. They're part of the song is, you know, Chris and Steve Gorman said on that, that, uh, um, episode of VH1 behind the music, the song. Yes. So we're happy for the song. I think you guys are happy with the song, for the song, in the song, feel the song. So on that note, always remember Southern Rock is Reverent and Blues is Blood. We'll see you next time.